This episode is brought to you by Crimped. This might be the best tool in the app store when it comes to training for rock climbing. Right now, I'm feeling really motivated to work on my leg and hip flexibility for a climb I want to do in Waco this coming winter. Waco season's coming up, and I need to be slightly more open in my hips to reach this foothold on a climb that I want to do. Unfortunately, I hate stretching, but the great thing is Crimped makes it easy. I just jump into the app, pull up their hip and leg flexibility workout. There are videos that show me exactly what to do, a built-in timer that tells me exactly how long to hold each stretch, and I don't even have to think about it. I love it. If you are a self-coached climber and want proven workouts to improve your bouldering or your finger strength, your flexibility, endurance, you name it, Crimped has you covered. So check it out. Crimped is spelled C-R-I-M-P-D. That's crimp with a D at the end. And you can find it in the App Store for iOS or on Android, or you can use the web-based version at crimped.com. And it's totally free to try it out. Check out Crimped. That's crimp with a D at the end to get started with your training. This episode is brought to you by Fizzy Vantage, the official climbing nutrition sponsor of the Nugget Climbing Podcast. Fizzy Vantage is the leading brand in climbing nutrition with more than 40 professional climbers now using Fizzy Vantage products daily to support their training and climbing performance. Many of those names are people I've had on the podcast. Visit fizzyvantage.com to learn more about their many innovative research-based nutrition products and supplements, including their revolutionary supercharged collagen. That's my personal favorite. I'm rocking the chocolate flavor right now. The performance-boosting Endurex and their delicious protein supplements, Weapons Grade Whey, and their plant-based PowerPlex. If you would like to feel the Fizzy Vantage, head over to fizzyvantage.com and use code NUGGET15 at checkout to save 15% off any full-priced nutrition product. That's NUGGET15 at checkout, and you can find a direct link to this coupon right there in your podcast app. Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of the Nugget Climbing Podcast. This is your host, Stephen Dimmitt, and my guest today is Marissa Michael. Marissa literally wrote the book on nutrition for climbing. She wrote a book called Nutrition for Climbers, Fuel for the Send. She primarily works with athletes and climbers, and her specialty is in eating disorders and disordered eating among athletes and climbers. And that is mostly what we talked about in this conversation. Marissa is passionate about this, and she feels as though there's not enough information out there for climbers who struggle with eating disorders or who are at risk for eating disorders. And that's a lot of us because climbing is such a performance-oriented sport. So many of you guys listening are driven and want to get the most out of your bodies and climb harder grades. And nutrition can be part of that, but it's a slippery slope. There's a fine line between eating for performance and disordered eating. And that's really the question I was most interested in in this conversation. Where's the line? So I do want to share that trigger warning. We did talk quite a bit about eating disorder behaviors. I just want to be really clear about that in case that topic of conversation is something that's unhelpful for you or triggering for you wherever you're at on your own journey right now. Before we dive in, Marissa also asked that I put a link to the National Eating Disorder Hotline in the show notes. And I've done that. It's in the show notes. It's also right there in your podcast app if you scroll down. So if you or someone close to you is suffering from disordered eating, please know that that's right there as a resource. And Marissa also asked me to share one more thing. She never explicitly stated in this conversation that if you are struggling with disordered eating or someone close to you is struggling, 
definitely seek professional help. It's important to get a therapist, physician, and dietitian to help with eating disorder treatment. It's not something that you can just DIY. And the research shows that much better outcomes happen with full treatment. Eating disorders can be life-threatening, and that's not something to mess with. So please seek out help if you feel you need it or if you think someone close to you is in need of help. It's also worth mentioning that if you're someone who does not identify with disordered eating, that's not something that you've struggled with or feel that you are at risk with, I still think this will be a helpful conversation. I asked Marissa about her thoughts on popular diet trends right now and if she had general recommendations for climbers, and Marissa had a lot of great things to say. All right, thank you guys for tuning in, and please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Marissa Michael. This is my van house. Welcome. That's awesome. Love it. <laughs> I'm parked on a sidewalk right now, poaching Wi-Fi from the house that I'm, the room that I'm renting for the little time that I'm here. <laughs> um, nice. <laughs> I like this sound check question. I haven't used it in quite a while, but I always am curious to ask people like you this question in particular. What did you have for breakfast this morning? I had a twice-baked potato and chocolate milk. That's interesting. That is not what I was, I don't know what I was expecting, but that's surprising to me. Can you talk <laughs> me through that? Like, is that typical? Is that just because it sounded no, good this morning? It just sounded good. I just had leftovers and I like potatoes. <laughs> and then I felt like I needed to round it out with some protein and that sounded like it was settling my stomach, the chocolate milk. Okay. Sometimes my stomach feels funky in the morning. Like I, I have trouble eating breakfast sometimes, but I always do it because I know I need it. So. Okay. Did you put yeah. anything on the potato? Well, it has sour cream and bacon bits and cheese on it. So. Okay, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. A hearty, a hearty potato. Yeah, a hearty baked potato. Yes. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't well, know. It just hit the spot. <laughs> yeah, it sounds great. That sounds great. Um, how are you? How is uh, how is November in Portland? I lived in Oregon for a long time. I imagine it's uh, I imagine it's cold and rainy. But yeah, how is Portland? How are it's you? Fine. It's been dumping rain for. Days and days, but today it's actually sunny, which is nice. really exciting for me. Great. I like the sun. And what about your own uh, athletics and things? I know you like triathlons. Are you getting outside lately, training or, or getting out and doing anything? No, it's the off season. So I don't do much outside if it's dumping rain, except go on some runs, um, maybe some hiking, but that's about it. So okay. I'm just kind of in maintenance mode. Maintenance I mode. I like to just, yeah, just lift a couple times a week do some sort of cardio and then climb like maybe once a week or so. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Well, it's good to see you again, Marissa. Thanks for being here. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited about this. Me too. Me too. And I think I'll uh, tackle this conversation a little bit differently than normal. Actually, I'm staring at the exact same outline that I sent to you. And uh, with some listener questions as well, I got like half a dozen listener questions for you from patrons. So we might mix oh, those nice. in throughout awesome. the conversation. But yeah, I think what I want to do is just kind of lay out the framework that I gave you for listeners. And then we'll we'll just jump in and start with an intro to who you are. But I figure a great way to tackle this is to start with an intro of who you are and let people get to know you and your practice a little bit and how you got into uh, what you specialize in. And then uh, 
people, I'm sure, are already aware of this from just reading the episode title, but we're going to be talking a lot about eating disorders in climbing and how to navigate them, how to prevent them, how to balance. Something I'm very interested in is how to balance um, discipline and performance with the risk of eating disorders and maintaining a healthy mindset around food and things like that. So yeah, intro to you and then just some awareness about eating disorders and what distinguishes them. And then I think we'll spend a fair bit of time talking about finding the balance as athletes, as driven athletes in particular. I think we should focus on youth climbers in particular towards the end, and then um, we can wrap up and make sure that we didn't miss anything. How's that all sound to you? That's perfect. Yeah. All right. Uh, Do you want to start off by telling me a bit about your private practice in Portland? And I'm curious about this question too. I'm a little bit embarrassed that I still don't like I, I understand that there's a difference between a dietitian and a nutritionist, and I know that a dietitian has more. There's more of a rigorous path to get to being a registered dietitian, but I wouldn't be able to stand in an elevator and describe to someone what the difference is there. And I'm sure people listening probably have the same question. So I, I was looking at your website this morning, and I saw that you called yourself a registered dietitian nutritionist, which I thought was interesting. Those three mm. words in a row. So. Can you describe your practice and and how you would disting, uh, distinguish those different things? Yeah. Uh, so uh, they used to call it just registered dietitian. And then several years ago, the Academy of Dietetics decided we could also tack on the nutritionist at the end, just to clarify for the public, because sometimes dietitian isn't very clear what the heck that is. So that's why I put registered dietitian nutritionist, because it seems to clarify a little more what, what I do. But uh, a dietitian is someone that um, it's a regulated term, so there's licensure involved. So you have to have at least a bachelor's degree. And as of 2024, you have to have a master's degree to become a dietitian. You also have to do an internship with a certain number of hours and it has to be accredited. And then you have to pass an exam. And then once you have done all that, you can call yourself a registered dietitian. And you also have to maintain continuing education credits and renew your license every five years. So there's just some regulation around that about um, who can call themselves a dietitian. And a dietitian is a little bit different than a nutritionist, although dietitians are nutritionists. Um, The dietetics uh, training is more uh, through like a medical lens. Um, So they call it medical nutrition therapy. So after you become a dietitian, you could help someone with uh, diseases that involve nutrition and help treat those diseases through nutrition, like uh, diabetes or heart disease. Lots of dietitians end up working in hospitals as clinical dietitians. They um, help people with tube feedings, IV feedings, any kind of medical nutrition therapy. So it's a little bit different than a nutritionist um, where the training isn't as standardized and they can um, not really do that medical nutrition therapy piece like that clinical lens there. Got it. Okay. Thank you. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Perfect. And then um, I'm very curious to hear, actually, first, tell me a little bit about your practice. What do you spend yeah. most of your time doing? What's that look like these days? Yeah. I uh, specialize in athletes and active people and also disordered eating and eating disorders. So a lot of my time and my clients are helping people figure out how to improve their health and their performance. Uh, through nutrition or uh, helping with eating disorder recovery. And a lot of my clients are a lot of teen clients. Um, I get just any kind of athlete all the way from recreational to pro and collegiate and just helping them figure out how to optimize their nutrition. So 
Yeah, I just spend a lot of time just talking with people and helping them tweak their diets and figuring out what their needs are um, and helping them figure out how to implement it in their own lives. So it's kind of a mix of nutrition, but also some behavioral strategies as well. Okay. And how much time do you spend working with climbers? Like what percentage of your clients are climbers just out of curiosity? Uh, it's actually kind of low. Um, I don't actually have a ton of climbers because I do all sorts of athletes. I think if I limited myself to just climbers, I probably wouldn't really have a practice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it makes sense. Makes sense. <laughs> I don't know if there's enough uh, out there, you know? <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, to, to sustain that, but yeah, yeah. Okay, so another thing I was curious about with you is how you got into this specialty of eating disorders in the climbing world and, and what made you so interested in that. The first thing that came to mind was like, oh, this person must have had an eating disorder. I don't know why, but I just kind of made that leap. Like, it's that whole... Uh, I can't remember if it was maybe Alice Hafer who said this on the podcast, but our pain becomes our passion. You know, the things that we struggle with, we so often want to take what we've learned and those hard lessons that we've learned and help other people. Uh, but that's not the case with you. I learned that in our uh, pre-interview, getting to know you a little bit. So I'm curious, how is it that you got into this specifically? How did this become your specialty? Yeah, um, I started getting into the climbing world when my son was 11. Um, he's now 18. So about seven years ago, he was on a comp team and a rec team. And so I started just getting interested in climbing with that. And through that, I started learning more about the whole climbing world and that uh, messaging around body weight and how you need to be thin to climb. And um, through that experience, I also, so I've been a dietitian for 20 years, but I went back to school about five years ago to get um, that International Olympic Committee's Diploma in Sports Nutrition and also a master's degree in sports nutrition. So through both of those things, um, I did climbing as my research. So I ended up publishing in scientific journals, a couple of um, publications about climbing and disordered eating, because as I started getting into it more, I realized there's this whole world of climbing where there's some messaging around body image and weight and I felt like this is sort of a void that could be filled. Mm. Um, and I didn't see, I, I'm sure there's some dietitians and nutritionists out there that are doing the same thing that I am doing, but I didn't see a lot of it. So I felt like I'm a person that's positioned to be able to help. Like maybe I could help get some uh, positive messaging out there and some evidence-based messaging around what you can really do to um, be a better climber as far as nutrition goes. Kind of saw this niche that could be filled so decided to go for it just out of a, a need to help, like a desire to help and to feel like, you know, there's a lot of other sports that are really well researched that have a lot of uh, attention on them, you know, running or cycling or soccer or anything else. There's lots of other really common sports that have tons of research behind it. Climbing doesn't have a lot yet. It's kind of in its infancy. So I felt like I am a person that could could help kind of fill that void and mm. do something for the climbing community there. I love that. And uh, it's interesting. So something I had asked you in our pre-interview is what would make you proud of this conversation? And you had said, climbers deserve more. And I, I think that's what you were talking about, everything that you just kind of shared yeah. with me. And what do you want to make sure that we include in this conversation specifically? What feels really important that's missing from the climbing world or doesn't get talked enough about, you know, in, in relation to eating disorders or relationship with food, things like that. What are the key things that you want to make sure that we hit on in the time that we have? Yeah, I think that um, 
There's a lot of climbers that have come out lately about their own eating disorder experience. And I think that's really powerful and useful and amazing and vulnerable and brave for them to do that. And I love every story. Like every, every time I see one come out, I read it and just want to honor those people that are trying to make a difference with their own stories. And so I want to kind of use those stories to now talk about, well, what can we do about it? you know, or how could we maybe prevent it? Um, Because every time I do read those stories about people that went through eating disorders, I feel like, I wonder if they had different information or better information, if they would have not even had to experience that horrible thing. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of the lens that I operate through with things I do on my website or with my clients or any kind of webinar or lecture I ever do, any kind of publication. I always try to think, is there someone that may be reading this that maybe we can prevent an eating disorder somehow where if they had good information or a different way to frame how they think about their body or their sport or their nutrition. So that's what I'd like to do with this conversation. I love it. Awesome. That's, yeah, I, I feel the same way for people that are newer to the podcast that have discovered it in the last year or so. They might not know this, but I went through... I don't know what to call it, if it was an eating disorder or just a, you know, a period of disordered eating. I never got a diagnosis, so probably the mm-hmm. the latter. But I shared that story in episode 59 of the podcast, which was about a year and a half ago now, back in March of 2021. And that was um, talking about like a chapter in my life from probably spring of 2018 until now, honestly, but really until like 2021. 2020, I think that was kind of the the darkest chapter for me of going through that. And that was exactly my hope in sharing that as well is like, I just hope that someone listening to this can learn the lesson that I learned without having to go through it and learn it the hard way, hopefully. Yeah. Um, But it's really hard. I mean, especially as athletes, something I want to talk about later, we, we can kind of save it and work our way towards that. But how do we know where the line is? Because so many people listening to this are athletes. They feel driven. They feel so motivated with their climbing and they want to stack all the cards in their favor as athletes. And a, you know, a big yeah. part of climbing is fighting gravity. And so, and you know, we all know now that nutrition does matter and what we eat, you know, can, can serve us in, in our bodies or whatever, you know, there's just, food is powerful. It's the stuff that makes us us. And so a lot of people are thinking more about that, but where's the line? How do we make sure that we honor ourselves in that process versus um, taking it too far? So yeah, I'm excited to make our way towards that. But first things first, let's dive into awareness and some general questions that I have here. What distinguishes an eating disorder or disordered eating? Uh, You know, maybe this is just uh, red flags, things to to look out for, whatever. But um, I think that's a good top level question to start with. Yeah, and sometimes um, we use those terms interchangeably, and sometimes I do just in conversation because it seems easier. But there is the distinction. So, an eating disorder is a diagnosable condition based on a set of criteria. They call it the DSM five manual. So it's just this diagnostic manual where if you flip to the eating disorder section, you'll find titles for eating disorders, anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, binge eating syndrome, things like this. So you'll you'll find these specific um, names for clinical conditions and they have specific criteria to meet that diagnosis. So that's an eating disorder, an official eating disorder. 
but I often just say disordered eating because there's some disordered eating that doesn't neatly fall into this criteria of diagnostic criteria, but it's still very detrimental. It can be really harmful to health. It can be just as um, harmful to someone's um, mental and physical health as an official quote-unquote official eating disorder. So there's kind of a range and a spectrum there. And even within a diagnosable eating disorder, some are more severe than others. So often I just say eating, or sorry, disordered eating, because that sort of covers everything. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then what are the characteristics of disordered eating? I mean, I know there's a lot of, it, it takes a lot of different shapes. It shows up in a lot of different ways. Um, but, you know, Disordered eating versus following a, you know, restrictive diet of some type, maybe for, for health reasons or whatever. Um, what are the key things that you're looking for if you're talking to a new client to try to figure out like, okay, is this person experiencing disordered eating? What does that look like? Yeah, it often is dictated by the level of anxiety they have around food and sometimes around body image also, and also exercise. So if it feels compulsive, or excessive with the exercise, that's also something I take into account. So if someone is coming to me and they're like, I want to uh, follow a great diet so I can be really healthy or be an amazing athlete, and they're trying to be strict about it, there is a distinction there between, well, is this disordered or is this just you know, working toward their goal? Um, and usually this disordered aspect comes from the mindset around the food and also the time spent thinking about the food. Um, so in a normal person that doesn't have any kind of disordered eating, you might wake up and feel hungry and eat and then move on with your day and then realize you're hungry again around lunchtime and eat and same with dinner. So food doesn't really take up a lot of mental energy. Food doesn't feel very taxing. You don't spend a lot of time obtaining, procuring, cooking the food, and then you don't have a lot of anxiety actually eating the food or really second guessing it. And then you don't have guilt or shame afterwards or any kind of regret. You just sort of eat the food and move on. And it's sort of a non-issue in your life. Um, and within disordered eating, it's more extreme. It feels like it's taking up a lot of mental space, a big burden in your brain and also in your emotions. Um, and it can feel very extreme as far as like guilt or shame or anxiety around the food. So um, that's what I'm looking for. And then some behavior patterns, like um, if they feel like they have to uh, maybe count their calories or not that counting calories in and of itself is disordered, but that's a commonality with a lot of disordered eating. Um, if they feel like maybe they have to trade food for exercise and vice versa. So if they decide they want to eat a cupcake, they think, well, now I must run three miles to burn that off. You know, there's like this exchange happening there and they're very coupled together. Um, they could feel like um, they're skipping a lot of meals or eliminating large numbers of food groups, or they have uh, what they call fear foods. So certain foods they totally avoid and will not eat. It's very distressing for them to eat them. They feel like the food is a threat to them. Um, they're extremely worried about health to the point that it's actually detrimental for their mental and their physical health. So those are some things I'm watching for there. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, that's really helpful. And it kind of takes us right into that balance question. I, I mean, I have a ton of questions about this because it seems like this is what it all comes down to is 
how to think about the balance, how to find the right balance for each and every one of us personally. And then maybe we can come, we can circle back to general thoughts on what people should do, thoughts on prevention, how to help someone else if you see someone in your life that might be struggling with this. Does that sound yeah. good? You want to circle back yeah, to that stuff later? Definitely. Yeah. Okay. That's perfect because everything that you said, I mean, it resonates so strongly with me. I've experienced so much of that anxiety in so many different shapes and, and forms. And it's, there's some like weird irony there. Like now I eat in a really, um, routine way. I, I kind of, for people listening that don't know, um, I mostly follow like a paleo diet approach and, you know, have some exceptions here and there, but it's, I, I'm kind of robotic. Like I can kind of just eat the same lineup of meals day after day. And for me, that provides actually a lot of freedom from what you're just describing, from that anxiety, from like thinking and obsessing about food prep and how am I going to get the protein that I want to get, whatever. I can kind of just like, I've built habits, I guess, is the short way of saying it. Mm -hmm. I've, I've built habits yeah. that make me feel good and I can just kind of rinse and repeat that. But I had to go, I, I had to travel well into disordered eating and anxiety to then come back to a place that feels uh, healthy and sustainable for me. And a big question that I have for you is, you know, I still really admire discipline in athletes, in, in role models and people that have a way that they eat that is, you know, very nutritious and healthy and serving their body well, and they just stick to it. And, you know, they, they don't go out for beers or they don't buy the ice cream or whatever it is, but it's, you know, and, and I can't know what's going on internally from them, you know, inside them, but if they're an athlete who's targeting a really hard goal that they are passionate about, I get a lot of inspiration from discipline and I'm, I'm curious, like, is that okay? Is it okay to think about discipline that way and admire it like that and put it on a pedestal? And what I'm really getting to is this question of where is the line, you know, eating well for performance versus disordered eating. Uh -huh. Yeah. How do you think about that? What are, your, what are the first thoughts that come to mind? Yeah, that's such a good question because it kind of gets to the heart of like everybody that's wondering, uh, am I disordered or am I just amazing? <laughs> <laughs> right? Like, am I super disciplined and I'm like superhuman and I can just be amazing at how I eat and how I train? Or is this something that's problematic? Um, and you can know by a couple of different ways. Um, there's actually a sports psychologist. Her name is Dr. Kate Bennett. She's in Colorado and she's awesome. She works with all sorts of athletes, but also climbers. So she created this chart where she talks about you know, um, pursuit of, um, athletic excellence versus if it's, um, starting to become disordered in your relationship with your sport and exercise. Um, so I used her chart in my book and I had permission to use it and also adapt it to food. So I kind of, I kind of borrowed from her. So I can't say this is my own thinking. I just standing on the shoulders of giants. Right. So, um, so she kind of delineates it in a really good way. And this comes from eating disorder research as well. So if you think about what you're doing in your sport or your performance or your diet or whatever it is, if it comes from a place of self-care and uh, flexibility, then it's not disordered. So for example, you might feel like I have this certain climbing goal. I want to send this project or I want to up myself a grade or whatever it is. Um, so you can think, what do I need to do to get to that goal? And if you think, Maybe I'll get a coach. Maybe I'll start 
fingerboard training. Maybe I'll dial in on my protein intake or whatever it is. Those can all be worthy goals that feels like it's empowering. It feels like it's coming from a place of self-care. It feels like once you accomplish that thing, it'll give you a sense of pride. It'll give you a sense of satisfaction, things like that. And along the way, when you're trying to make these goals, you have some flexibility within it and you find joy and motivation within it. So for example, if you're wanting to go training on a certain day and your coach gave you um, a training plan and you realize you wake up and you feel like crap and you had a crappy sleep or whatever it is, then you would realize maybe it's not appropriate for me to go train hard on this day. This was supposed to be a really, really hard day, just not feeling it, not appropriate. So you can kind of um, be flexible within your training plan. You can be flexible within your diet, um, but still try to be disciplined and follow it as much as possible. Mm. But knowing that real life will come into play or knowing that um, maybe this arbitrary training plan that your coach gave you doesn't take into account all the things that are happening in your life or all of your stressors. So you can find some flexibility there as you're reaching your goal and still be disciplined in it. And disordered would look like total rigidity. You are following the training plan regardless of what's happening in your life or in your body. Mm. Uh, you are following the diet regardless of what's happening. You follow the diet with, to the extent that it's disruptive or causes anxiety or distress to you. You can't even participate in going out with friends to a restaurant because it wouldn't follow the meal plan. So it would be more distressing and more rigid and more inflexible. And also it uses, usually kind of sucks the joy out of it. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, it feels like a chore. It feels very um, like rigid and it's not as much fun anymore, but it also isn't stemming from a place of self-care. So an eating disorder is always going to be coming from a place of self-destruction. Like mm. it, it's not going to want to preserve your health. The eating disorder is really powerful and really convincing and it will um, it will try to get you to do anything and everything to follow it. And um, self-care isn't being very restrictive. Self-care is not eliminating all food groups or skipping meals or not being able to participate in social situations because the eating disorder doesn't let you. You know, self-care is more um, coming from a place of self-preservation. Yeah. yeah. I, I find it really interesting that you're talking about the eating disorder as if it's this separate entity, like it's other mm -hmm. than ourselves. Is that important in your language and talking to clients? Like, do you always, yeah, yeah tell, yeah, tell yeah. me how you think about that. Uh, it's actually really a helpful tool. You kind of personify it. Uh, and this helps because it can become entangled in your mind. And again, like you said, I've never had an eating disorder, so I don't know any personal experiences. So this is going off of what clients have shared with me over the years of how they feel about their eating disorder and also what's in the scientific literature there. So um, the eating disorder, a tool that I use with people, and this is, this is pretty common in eating disorder treatment, is to give it a name or personify it and try to disentangle it from your own personality and your own thoughts. Because then you can start to identify what it's telling you and then you can start to reframe those thoughts or dismiss those thoughts. So the more you act on the eating disorder, the more power you give it. Um, and if you can notice what the eating disorder is and what it's telling you and um, start to go against that, it'll become less empowered in your mind. And then you can start to find your true healthy self rather than that disordered self. Mm. So some people even name it, like I've had people name it all sorts of things. Lots of people just call it Ed, like ED for eating disorder. <laughs> like that dang Ed, it told me to 
not eat carbs, but I'm going to eat the carbs, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Some people name it whatever they want. Like I've had people name it all sorts of swear words, you know, just (laughs) whatever. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So it helps to start thinking about it as like a separate illness that's not me, that's trying to mess with me and I'm not going to let it. Yeah. Asshole Ed, maybe. Yep, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) This is fascinating. You're actually... um... I love this. You're helping me, even though I I feel like I'm, I guess, through, I've like gone through my own journey and have arrived at a a healthy place and feel really good about my relationship with food and and my body and things like that at this point. You're, I've processed it a lot. And yet already in this conversation, you're giving me some language that is better helping me understand my own journey. And I'll keep this really brief in case people have already listened to me talk about this and I don't want to repeat myself, but the self-care aspect, I mean, that's what's so interesting and complex about this. It's really interesting to hear you talk about the parallel between training and eating disorders. I'd never really thought about how similar my behaviors mm-hmm. have been in both of those mm-hmm. realms, yeah. but it's it's so complex because, you know, for me with the eating thing, Initially losing weight, um, I don't know if you know this, but I got a DEXA scan that was um, inaccurate and yeah. it was it was a bad result and it made me seem as though I had way more body fat than I actually had at the time and I thought I had a lot more potential to improve my body composition and health in a safe way and potentially unlock some, some climbing improvement through that process. So trying to lose a bunch of weight actually was coming from a place of self-care. It actually felt really empowering and I was really excited about it and it felt really healthy until it didn't, you know, it it was, it was like a four to six month period where it felt really empowering and I felt really, um, it just motivated and everything was really good. And, and then just cooked myself in pursuit of an unsustainable number on a scale. And that kind of became my like North star. And then all of the anxiety and the shame and, you know, almost like morality, like I failed as a human, I suck as a human, all of that came after when I realized like, holy shit, I got a different DEXA scan at a different, um, a different company and, um, you know, double checked with this 3D body fit scan thing and realized, wow, I've actually been at my goal for months now. I'm way leaner than I thought I was. And I was like, cool, I've made it. I can relax now. And then, you know, the weight started coming back on because I was at a suppressed artificially low body weight and I hadn't been eating enough calories. And and then it was just this cycle of like, restriction and then binging and then restriction and just feeling like, where did all my discipline go? Where did all my control yeah. go? Why do I suck now? You know, do I not love climbing yeah. anymore? All of that was just coming forward for me. So it's it's really interesting how, I think the reason that, um, like hearing you describe the parallel between training and eating disorders is such a common trap because it starts to work and it can start out as this really empowered, positive thing in your life you know, like training. Oh my gosh, I started training. I stuck to a schedule. It was hard at times, but I feel so empowered. It worked. I feel stronger. So now I'm going to do more of it, or now I'm going to push through and keep doing it. Even when I feel this little tweak in my finger, I'm going to go hangboard anyway, because I, I, you know, I want to stick to the plan. I want to be this disciplined athlete, whatever. So it can so easily shift from one mindset to the other. 
Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And, and so discipline can mean, yes, I'm committed to a plan and I'm ready to, um, you know, do nutrition or training or whatever that means, but it doesn't have to mean ignoring your body cues and it doesn't have to mean ignoring your mental or physical health. Um, so that's where you kind of cross the line over into being disordered or maybe being compulsive with your exercise. You know, I see this over and over again in clients. Like I had one client that had a stress fracture. She's in a boot and she's trying to run because she knows if I need to run because I don't want to lose my fitness. And that's mm. the eating disorder telling her that, you know, and instead running is like the worst thing <laughs> that needs to happen to her body right now, you know, right. so the eating disorder is very distorted in the way it thinks about things. It's very extreme. It's very black and white thinking. There's no nuance there. There's no consideration for how your body is actually feeling or functioning. Mm. Yeah. And I'm curious, like, I don't, I don't know if there's a way to answer this, but I'm curious if you had known maybe body weight doesn't matter as much as climbing in climbing as we think it does. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't have a ton of evidence right now, but we do have probably, I don't know, 10 to 12 studies that all say body weight actually doesn't really matter in climbing for people that are already in an appropriate normal weight. Mm. So if you lose five, 10 pounds, that might not even make that much of a difference and it may be harmful. And then maybe you'll lose muscle mass strength and get underfueled and, have depleted glycogen stores or be dehydrated, right? So like yeah. what's the trade-off there? Like, do you really need to lose weight to send a heart project? Maybe you do. We don't have enough data to say yes or no, but there's a lot of correlations that are saying you actually, you know, body weight is very, very small part of your climbing performance. And it's mostly related to like how many years do you actually have experience climbing? You know, climbing is really skill-based and technical. So climbing rewards people that climb a lot. You know, and the strength to weight ratio, that's only one part of it. Flexibility, endurance, you know, there's all these other things. Even like, are you wearing the right climbing shoe? You know, like just <laughs> stuff like that, you know, like that can make a difference. Um, so that's kind of the messaging I've been trying to get out also is the evidence we have says if you're already in appropriate weight, you actually don't need to lose weight to climb better and it can actually backfire on you. So let's all calm down about weight and focus on other things we can do to be better climbers. I love that. Yeah. I mean, and I think, I mean, to answer that first question that you asked, I think there are actually a few things that if I had known them or thought more about them or been exposed to these, uh, these ideas, it could have prevented the, the whole thing for me. I've talked about this before on the podcast, but the great silver lining with my own story is that I realized I had some kind of low level simmering anxiety um, or unhealthy behavior around food for like a decade before all Mm -hmm. of this, Mm -hmm. you know, and it was just this subtle thing of like, I live at Smith Rock. My paradigm is that all the strong sport climbers here look a certain way. And I was trying to fit myself into that box rather than paying attention to the examples of climbers out there who looked like me, who were, you know, naturally a little bit more muscular and bulky and still succeeding and doing the types of things I wanted to do. Um, So I think that, I mean, I think just in the last few years, we've seen so many more examples, or at least I've started paying attention to more examples of climbers who don't look like the 1990s sport climber, you know, and who are absolutely crushing. Um, There's so many of them out there. I mean, and, and some, some big guys too, like talking to John Glassberg and, you know, he climbed V15 at like 190 pounds or whatever. He's, you know, he's six foot two and just a mm-hmm. big guy. 
it just completely destroys all those stories in my head about like, well, if I, mm-hmm. if I let myself put on muscle, my fingers won't be able to handle the extra load. You know, it's like, oh, that's yeah. obviously bullshit because this guy's... There's research on that. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Really good research on that. Yeah. Um, you know, they, there was a hypothesis. If you have a higher BMI, is that going to put you at more risk for finger injuries as a climber? Because, oh no, more weight on your fingers might mean that you tweak it more, injure it more. And really it's the opposite. Your fingers adapt and they are stronger because Mm. they are carrying that heavier load. So, yeah. So just stuff like that, just kind of flipping the script a little bit or questioning our narrative, Mm -hmm. you know, around, around weight and, and climbing and ability. And, um, you know, like there's been some research, just a couple studies now about, um, elite climbers and their risk for disordered eating and, 43% 43% of the elite female climbers had disordered eating patterns. So wow. you're like, well, they're thin, but are they, are they, we're thinking, we're looking at them climbing and we're thinking, wow, they're thin. They're amazing. Maybe I need to be thin also. And maybe we should be thinking, wow, do they have an eating disorder? <laughs> you know, like it's yeah. just maybe thinking about it in a different way or thinking about, um, body diversity in a different way instead of thinking i have to make my body fit a certain mold to climb hard maybe think what can i do with my own body the way it is to climb hard Mm, i love that i love that yeah not just assuming that just because someone's climbing hard and looking a certain way that everything is good for them exactly right Mm -hmm. it's just one snapshot in time yeah yeah yep that's great and we only see them at comps unless you're really following them closely. We probably only see them at comps. So at comps, they're at their peak. Um, This happens in other sports where they periodize their weight, they periodize their nutrition. So we're only seeing climbers at their comps, um, at World Cups or at Olympics or whatever. And did they periodize their weight? Are they the thinnest they've ever been for that comp? And maybe they weight cycle off, you know, like there's all sorts of things to consider that we don't know what's going on. That's yeah. Thank you. That's really helpful. I, we should talk about weight cycling. Actually, I think that's that's really interesting. I'd be curious to get your thoughts on when, if ever, that's appropriate for most climbers. You know, because it makes sense in the context of like a competitor athlete who wants to peak for their sport on this specific day. You know, and yeah. maybe even at the expense of doing the you know the quote like healthiest thing they could possibly do. Like. Um, I mean, this is an extreme example, but bodybuilding as a sport is a is a great mm-hmm. example. Like these people mm-hmm. do something insanely unhealthy to peak towards a certain day, and then of course they cycle off. They can, they don't maintain mm-hmm. that you know three percent, four percent body weight all the time. Um, yeah, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, is cycling weight, you know, bulking more or letting yourself um, gain a little weight when you're strength training and then trying to taper off or get a little lighter and peak for a performance season or for a route that you want to do or for a competition. Is that healthy or can that be healthy and appropriate for most climbers? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. um, Let me start by framing it by saying uh, as a dietitian, like I always try to go toward evidence-based recommendations and nutrition and we, don't really have any evidence other than to say weight doesn't really matter as much as we thought it did, right? So that's kind of the framework I'm working from. Um, but again, the evidence is in its infancy. So the way nutrition, sports nutrition usually evolves is 
um, researchers and clinicians and practitioners are on one end and then the athletes are on the other. And we kind of look at each other and see what our practices are and try to see like, oh, maybe the athletes are onto something. You know, if they're weight cycling and they're doing well, we could research that and see if there's any evidence for what they're doing is appropriate. Or, um, you know, a researcher could like there's we have research like i mentioned that says weight doesn't matter as much as we thought it was like one study said only 1.8 percent of your anthropometrics contribute to climbing performance and another one says about four percent so we're kind of like on the research end we're like mm, maybe it doesn't matter that much but the athletes are like but we feel like it does you know so can we can we come to like can we figure out what's really the best practice there and that'll take some time like, as far as I know, we don't have any studies that have like a control group and an experimental group and the experimental group loses weight. And what was the outcome there for climbing? Mm-hmm. Right. So that I want to kind of set it up that way. Like, I don't really know if I'm going strictly based off of evidence as as far as the evidence, except that maybe it doesn't matter as much. That being said, in practice, that seems reasonable to try to periodize your weight right? To um, try to maybe lose a few pounds to send hard. But I just question the utility of it at this point. I wouldn't really recommend it for someone unless they feel like, yeah, your body composition may indicate that you do have some fat to lose and it'd still be healthy, but I would do it in a very specific way. I would definitely screen them for eating disorders before, during the whole process, you Mm -hmm. know, make sure that we're still on track and that that's okay. Um, because it's not worth triggering an eating disorder to lose five pounds, you know, like that's just a horrible trade-off. Right. Um, But if you are like a Olympic climber and you're speed climbing, that's the only scenario where I can think weight might make a way bigger difference than we think, because it's such a short discipline, you know, Mm. it's like, it's like what six seconds now, you know, like if you're sprinting six seconds up a wall against a competitor, if you have a couple pounds extra on you, that may make a big difference. You know, Mm. that may be the thousandth of a second or the hundredth of a second that makes a difference. So that in my mind, like that's where I go, where I'm like, "Mm, weight might actually be really relevant there, but the rest of it, I don't know. But again, really hard climbers that are amazing and elite might have some secrets to that that are really working for them that maybe we researchers need to study and learn from. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. That, that's interesting. I mean, that kind of hearing you say all that, it kind of makes me think of the other thing that I wish I had known that might have prevented my own disordered eating chapter, which is that if I, I just wish I had thought more about like the long-term, mm-hmm. long-term improvement, you know, like mm-hmm. just, just kind of zooming out and looking at losing weight to climb harder as a strategy, in hindsight, it's just so obvious to me that, okay, what was going to happen? Like maybe, you know, I was trying to climb my first 514 at the time. I was trying to climb this route called Badman at Smith Rock. And I almost did, but I didn't. And if I had, it wouldn't have changed anything. It wouldn't have made me a different person. It wouldn't have made me a different climber. And it's Mm -hmm. just so obvious looking back, like that was such a short-term strategy, you know? Like I was... yeah. I wasn't going to be able to sustain that low weight, obviously. And so what was going to happen? Well, maybe I was going to squeak out one hard send, but then I was going to gain some weight again and be right back where I started, probably weaker than when I started, which is exactly what happened. So, you know, thinking about it that way, now the way I think about it is it's almost done a 180 where I'm like, oh man, if I err on the side of being a little bit heavier than I need to be, (laughs) um, 
that's just like extra fuel and extra training weight all the time. And that's such a better long-term strategy for getting stronger. And it took a long time. I mean, that's something that, um, that I don't know if I've talked about too much is like, it, it was a pretty rough transition, you know, shifting to this different strategy because now my natural set point is like 165, 170 pounds. Whereas for the first decade, decade of my climbing, I was around 150 to 155. Um, and that was a hard transition. It took a long time for my fingers to kind of catch up. You know, I got some elbow tendonitis from overtraining during that process because I was trying to force it. I was like, oh, I need the strength mm-hmm. now, you know, and mm-hmm. I need to get back to where I was climbing before. So, and it, I think that was the hardest part of coming back to uh, the climbing level that I want to be at was just having patience. But it it's working. Like I trained this summer and uh, did some weightlifting for the first time in a few years because I live on the road and, and travel in my van and mostly just rock climb. Um, but I broke PRs like in a two-month training cycle of really not training that much, like training in a very sustainable mm-hmm. way. I set a massive PR in the deadlift at you know a higher strength-to-weight ratio than I ever have before by far. Um, I did a one-arm pull-up for the first time since 2015, I think. I climbed my hardest boulders on the moon board and I broke PRs on the hang board. So like what more evidence do you need that it's working? You know, like body weight doesn't matter. Body will perform. Yes, 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 Yes. exactly. And I, so that's my question, the utility of the losing weight, like, oh, what if I lose five or 10 pounds to send that project? And I'm like, but are you well fueled? Like, will you perform as well? Like mm -hmm. how, how much better could you be if you were actually like eating well, you know? Yeah. Okay, let's get to your recommendations for how to eat <laughs> as an athlete, as climbers who, you know, who want who want to give their bodies uh, the best fuel that they can. Do you do you use the word fuel? Is that a, is that appropriate? I like fuel. Yeah. Okay. I I I like it in context. Um, so fuel is useful because you think about your body as like, oh, I'm using food for energy, or I'm using food to. Um, rebuild and repair muscle tissue and maintain my organs and my bone turnover and all that stuff. Right. So I feel like fuel is useful and thinking about it in that context, but I don't like always using it as fuel because then I feel like that's disordered. Like food <laughs> is so much more than fuel, right? <laughs> you know, right, it's right. like celebration, it's culture, it's enjoyment. It's all these other things that, um, don't really capture with just the word fuel. You know what? I'm having another epiphany right now. Can I share it with you? Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Something I'm appreciating so much in hearing you talk about all this is just the amount of nuance involved in all of it. Nothing here is cut and dry. You know, it depends. It depends on the internal yeah. relationship that we have. And I think that was like such a slow to learn lesson for me in training more than in food even was like, because I was always obsessed with like, what's the best way? What's the best way to get strong? What's the best training plan? And it took me forever to realize that that's the wrong question to be asking because the best plan, if it's not right for you right now, is mm-hmm. meaning is worthless, is meaningless, you know. And um, yeah. so I've I've kind of pivoted towards okay, let's pay attention to principles and start to pay attention to themes between athletes yeah. who are having success, and really try to internalize those principles, and then also start to be a lot more fluid and um, uh, kind of vibey with my training, like, you know, paying a lot more attention to myself as 
an organism rather than treating myself like a robot and trying to stick to the schedule and paying attention to, like you said earlier, all these other stresses in life and just being more flexible. And that was hard for me because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm wired for routine and habit. I'm an engineer. I like structure, things like that, but it's, it's better. It's better. It feels healthier. Mm -hmm. It feels like it's working better. You know, our climbing doesn't exist in a vacuum. Training doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's part of our lives and stress is stress. It comes from a lot of different parts of our lives, but anyway. Um, So I appreciate that. I, I really like how you almost everything that you're saying has this kind of it depends yes. sort of context behind it, which is great. <laughs> That's always my answer. When someone, I'm like, well, it depends. And then I ask them a whole bunch of questions and then I can give them the answer. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you recommend intuitive eating in general to everybody? Is that kind of your go-to framework? Um, yes and no. Um, so it's really, really powerful for Uh, people that are recovering from eating disorders or just recovering from chronic dieting and they're tired of their relationship with food and they want to improve it. So that's really helpful for that kind of a framework. I think it can definitely work for athletes um, because it honors a lot of body attunement, which we're talking about, kind of that idea of, um, I don't know if you've ever heard of auto-regulation, like in weightlifting and training. Yeah. Yeah. So um, intuitive eating is similar where it's like, well, how can we attune ourselves to our our body's cues and our body knows what's up? How can we pay attention to that and make sure we're honoring our hunger, honoring our fullness, feeling satisfied in the foods that we're eating and enjoying them? Um, using exercise in a meaningful way that doesn't feel compulsive or like a form of self-punishment or manipulation of our body weight or shape or size. So I like the intuitive eating framework. I think it's a really powerful one, but some people it doesn't really resonate with or they don't really care about it. So it's not like I just force it upon everybody. You know, some people come to me and they have some disordered eating patterns or they express an interest in intuitive eating. I definitely help them and guide them through that. And some people, they just don't need or want it. They're just like, tell me, you know, what I should be eating and how to make this happen. And we don't really ever talk about intuitive eating because it's not relevant for them or it's not something they're seeking out. Um, but I, I think it's a really powerful framework. I really like it. Okay. That's, that's great. Cause that actually resonates with me. The last thing that you said there, because I'm that person, like I, I want to go to the grocery mm-hmm. store and not really have to think And so I just go around the circle, the outside of the grocery store and get my veggies and my meat and whatever and, um, and just kind of have like a a routine around what I buy. And that's really mentally freeing for me. Um, but I know I'm, I'm weird, so I'm not, you know, not everyone's like me. So describe the, I guess the framework and how it works, intuitive eating. Yeah. Um, so this is from, um, two dietitians, Evelyn Triboli and Elise Reich, and they, basically came up with these 10 principles called intuitive eating. So it's not a diet. It's kind of like a framework of how to approach food. Um, So they have 10 principles, ditch the diet mentality, honor hunger, make peace with food, um, challenge the food police, discover the satisfaction factor. That was that piece about talking about, is your food satisfying? You know, do you enjoy it? Feeling your fullness and honoring that. And then coping with emotions with kindness kind of like a, uh, talking about emotional eating, respecting your body, um, having joyful movement rather than discipline regimented exercise, unless that works for you, and then honor your health with gentle nutrition. So those are the 10 principles and they each have a lot of nuance to them. And 
we could talk for hours on that, you know, but mm-hmm. um, that's the framework that I like to approach um, with my clients that it resonates with, that they're interested in, because it really helps them have a good relationship with food or heal their relationship with food or understand how to understand body cues. And that really helps them eat appropriately. So for example, you were sharing how after you got off your diet, you were eating all the things, maybe it felt a little bit scary that you were overeating and gaining weight rapidly. So that's a predictable outcome of dieting. Restriction usually leads to some sort of overeating or binging episodes and feeling sort of out of control. But if you could have layered intuitive eating onto it, you would have been able to eat what feels satisfying, honor your hunger, but also honor your fullness. But then also realize what was happening to you was just a biological response to restriction. Yeah, it's just my your body screaming just at me, basically. For food. Yes, <laughs> it's like, please give me more food. I didn't get enough for months. And it feels very scary and out of control in the moment. Um, but it's just your body trying to preserve itself. Mm. Um, so intuitive eating um, kind of informs that process there and helps you either prevent it or understand what's going on with your body there. Mm. Okay. I think the thing I'm most curious about is, um, because I've, I've never really tried intuitive eating, I've never looked deeply into the principles that you just listed and their nuance. Mm-hmm. Um, but the first question that seems uh, like the trickiest part of that eating strategy if I can call it that, is just how do, how do we navigate that in our modern food environment? You know, that seems that seems so challenging for me. And that's part of why I kind of have what might seem from the outside like a rigid framework around how I eat. I follow a paleo diet for the most part. I try to hit a certain protein number every day and I try to eat meat at every meal. I feel best when I eat meat. And I know that if I eat a certain amount of meat at every meal, I'll hit that protein number. And for me, that allows me to then trust the signals that I'm getting from my body, if that makes Mm -hmm. sense. Whereas before, you know, back in my 20s, I avoided meat because I thought meat was bad. I was afraid of saturated fat, blah, blah, blah. Probably wasn't eating enough protein. And I had uh, such different cravings than I do now. I craved sweets. I craved, you know, bready baked goods all the time and things like that. And if I had tried intuitive eating, I feel like I would have just been eating Oreos for breakfast every day. So mm-hmm. how do we how do we navigate that in a world that's literally designed by food scientists to try to get us addicted to some of these foods in the grocery store and try to get us to eat as much of them as possible? You know, like we, we're kind of working against big food as an industry um, that's not interested or invested in our health as people. So... Yeah. How do we navigate intuitive eating in our modern food environment? Yeah. Yeah. So one of the principles of intuitive eating is the um, honor your health or gentle nutrition principle. So you're practicing that right now, even though you don't care about the intuitive framework or have never heard of it or didn't know that that was a thing, right? So you're like, oh, well, for me, I like to eat this way and this actually helps me feel better. So you've noticed like when I select these certain foods, I feel more energized. I feel satisfied. I don't feel like I'm anxious around food. It doesn't take up a lot of my brain space. So that really works for you. So that's that's honoring your body. That's practicing that gentle nutrition piece. That's kind of what intuitive eating is getting at. Like find the foods that work for you. Find the foods that are energizing for you, that make you feel like they settle well, you're digesting them well. It's supporting your needs and your goals and your health habits and all of that. Um, So that's a nice piece. But then it also feels like you are 
feeling full, you're honoring your hunger, like those types of things as well. So if you're thinking about like someone, someone's like, oh, I've heard of intuitive eating. That sounds whack. (laughs) All I would do is eat Oreos for breakfast and pizza and ice cream all day long, right? (laughs) Um, They're thinking more of food is seen more of almost like a threat in that situation. Like if you're looking at food as a threat or um, fear-based, where you're like, oh, this food is bad for me, but I will want to eat it because it tastes amazing. That's kind of seeing it as a threat rather than neutral. So you try to move toward neutrality with food. Like obviously there are foods that are healthier than others and diet patterns that are healthier than others, but you try to see it as I could take or leave this food. I could have permission to eat this food at any point. What actually would hit the spot right now? What would make me feel good after I eat it? You can ask yourself things like, how do I want to feel after I eat this? How long does this food need to last for me until my next meal? Um, What sounds good? What sounds appealing and satisfying to me right now? And usually in those instances, if you can really be attuned to your body, your body will start to give you signals that it wants healthier, nourishing food. Mm. So if you did go all out and just eat the Oreos for breakfast every day, you'd probably feel really gross. Like you probably wouldn't really enjoy it after a while. Actually, Oreos is a good example because I've had several clients that came to me feeling out of control with food, literally eating full sleeves of Oreos at a time, you know, and (laughs) feeling like, what's the matter with me? Why am I doing this? And then once we start making sure they're nourished in other ways, like, are you eating meals regularly? Does it have enough protein? Does it have enough fiber? Are you able to eat enough throughout the day? Once that's in place, the Oreos become less of an issue. They don't really want them or need them. Mm. And I've had several clients actually tell me, I tried them again and they're actually kind of gross. Yeah, totally. (laughs) So it's really interesting. Like once you start really trying to honor your body and your health, um, the sweet cravings might go away. But if they don't go away, that's also fine. You can still enjoy the sweets, but just do it mindfully. Like, is this going to really do something for me? Do I really want this? Is it going to be fun for me? Or is it going to contribute in some way to my satisfaction or engagement with life? Like Mm -hmm. maybe, you know, cake for breakfast doesn't taste good. It doesn't feel good in your body. So maybe you'd eat something else, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Um, I've had that uh, experience a lot where... um, yeah, I, I mentioned you, I have a sweet tooth and you said you wanted to ask me about that. I did, yeah, I do. <laughs> so yeah. here we go. So I totally have a sweet tooth. I love sweets. I think they contribute a lot of joy to my life. So I'm totally fine with including them in my life. Um, but I also know that if I eat them all the time, I do not feel good. So I take it into context, you know, like, oh, if I'm going to eat this donut on an empty stomach, I'm going to feel nasty. I actually kind of want a meal right now. I'm going to have a balanced meal. I'm going to have some proteins, some veggies, some carbs, you know, and then feel if I need the sweets afterwards. And sometimes I do and sometimes I don't, but Mm, yeah. So it's just, it's just kind of taking it within context and feeling like, did I nourish myself and do I really want Oreos all day long? (laughs) How do I feel on that? (laughs) (laughs) Totally. (laughs) And we will be right back. This episode is brought to you by Petzl. I have been using Petzl harnesses, quick draws, and belay devices for more than a decade. 
I love this company and their products. And today I want to talk about helmets. One of the things we love about climbing is the unknown. Is that hold going to be a jug or a sloper? Am I too pumped? Am I good enough to climb this route? We live for the unexpected. But no one expects to hit their head while climbing. Impacts to the front, side, and rear of the head happen when you least expect it. A foot slips, your rope snags on a rock, and you find yourself somewhere you don't want to be. That's why Petzl goes above and beyond UIAA and CE helmet standards to give you an extra level of protection on the top and side of their helmets. Top and side protection comes standard in their entire helmet lineup, so whether you're in the mountains or at the crag, you can experience the difference with Petzl. You can learn more and shop for helmets at your local climbing shop or online at Petzl.com. Again, shop for Petzl helmets at your local climbing shop or online at Petzl.com. Experience the difference with Petzl. This episode is also brought to you by Arcteryx. When Jordan Cannon, a young climber infatuated with climbing history, meets climbing legend Mark Hudon, a Yosemite Big Wall free climbing pioneer, they form an unlikely partnership around a common goal. Jordan wants to free climb the free rider on El Capitan in a day, and Mark hopes to free the route in as many days as it takes and accomplish his lifelong goal of free climbing El Capitan. Follow their story in Free As Can Be, a short climbing film brought to you by Arcteryx. I watched the film over the summer. It's 31 minutes long. It's so well done. It's a story of climbing partnership and adventure. And if you love this podcast, especially if you loved my episodes about Yosemite and free climbing on El Capitan, then I know you'll love the film. So check it out. Head over to YouTube and search for Arcteryx, Free As Can Be, or use the direct link right there in your podcast app to watch the full 31-minute film for free. Once again, you can head over to YouTube and search for Arcteryx, Free As Can Be, or use the direct link right there in your podcast app to watch the full 31-minute film for free. Arcteryx presents Free As Can Be, and we hope you enjoy the film. And now, back to the show. Okay, we're going to bounce around a little bit. Um, I do okay. want to talk more about sweets because I'm curious if it's ever okay to celebrate with food. I think I think that's something that a lot of climbers do. And it's, on one sense, it's it's like intuitive that it is probably totally fine to do. And then another sense, it almost seems like a red flaggy thing. And I'm curious how you think about that. But before oh, yeah. that, yeah. actually, let's just, yeah, never mind. Let's just t- talk about that. What do you think? Okay, yeah, sure. I think it's totally appropriate to celebrate with food. Um, so... Again, to kind of go back to the disordered eating mindset, disordered eating sees things in very black and white, very rigid extremes. So to say you could never celebrate with food is basically not acknowledging that you're a human and that food is a part of our enjoyment and our culture and our celebration and cultural um, and social aspects, right? So yeah, definitely celebrating with food is appropriate. Um, If someone doesn't celebrate with food when everyone else around them is, usually that's a red flag that there's some Hmm. disordered eating happening Hmm. Um, because they're not able to be flexible in the moment. And again, it comes from that place of, is it coming from a place of self-care? What's the intent behind it? If you are in an instance where you're celebrating with food, people around you are celebrating with food, maybe you actually don't feel like the food. Maybe you know that makes you feel gross or maybe it will help you with your health goals. That's fine to refuse it if it feels like it's not rigid or inflexible or if it feels like it's really um, empowering to you. Um, But most people can be flexible and, you know, be like, okay, I'm going to go out and have the burger and the beers after the crag, you know? Yeah. That's something that's really, really common and totally appropriate. Well, that's, yeah. I mean, that's, 
That's another thing I was curious about, actually, because I've read a little bit about moderators versus abstainers, you know, how there's, mm-hmm. and I'm curious how you think about that, if there is actually a separation on like a personality level between people who have the ability to moderate and be flexible versus people who are more black and white. And I think I've changed my mind about this. It, it You know, reading about that a few years ago, it really resonated with me and I felt like I was more of a abstainer personality. You know, that's how I'm wired. I like routine. I'm all in, all out. You know, if I make one exception to my way of eating, then at the time, uh, I'd tend to go off the rails, you know, and feel like it would open the floodgates. But then now, a few years later, I have a healthier just baseline of nutrition and how I eat. And I think I'm giving my body more of the things that it actually wanted, like you're talking about. Mm. And I'm totally different now. I'm actually able to be flexible and have, you know, two bites of a dessert and then feel satisfied Mm -hmm. and feel good and not need to compulsively like eat the entire Mm -hmm. pint of ice cream or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, it's, it's made me really curious, like, are there actually just those baseline differences in personalities or is that a sign that the people that feel like abstainers, maybe they're actually like missing out on something that would make them uh, they're they're missing out on something nutritionally that would give them that sense of being able to be flexible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I don't know what a psychologist or psychiatrist would answer to that. Like, I don't, I can't speak to personality types necessarily, but I can speak to eating disorder recovery and research in that. And if you abstain from foods in any situation, that's, that's going to be more disordered than just being able to eat that food in that situation that feels like it's a part of the context of what's going on. You know, like if it's like, oh, this is a celebration instead of, no, I can never eat that food. You're like, oh, that sounds fun. I can engage in that and eat that food. So there is research around um, what they call restrained eaters and also restrictive eating where the restrained eaters, like, okay, I'll give you an example. This was actually in the research. Um, this study was really interesting. So you have a plate of cookies, like pretend you're at a meeting. Someone brings a plate of cookies. There's people around the conference table and there's different types of people that will think about the cookies differently, right? So there's the person that's like, oh, sweet, a cookie. And you grab it because it's delicious. There's the person that thinks, I don't really feel like that. I don't really want it. They don't eat it. And there's a person that thinks, I really, really want that. It's not healthy. I shouldn't eat it. Um, thinking about it the whole meeting and then maybe eventually grabbing the cookie or not grabbing the cookie. <laughs> so that last person is the restrained eater, right? Like kind of like this waffling of like, God, I want it. Mm-hmm. Should I, should I not? You know, so the restrained eaters um, actually have more cortisol in their system. So that stress hormone, they have a worse relationship with food. And one study was really interesting. It showed they studied restrained eaters um, if they scored high on restrained eating in um, females. And they actually had more menstrual disturbances and lower bone mineral density, even when they were calorie matched. So, um, yeah. So we know that restrained eating is harmful to our bodies. Even it gives you a physiological response, Mm. which is super interesting. So... um, you know, and if you do this over time through dis- disordered eating and eating disorder, chronic dieting, where you're always feeling like you're holding yourself back from eating the food that you really want, that can be damaging on a 
biological level, mm. which is just fascinating. That is fascinating. And it's a pretty powerful reframe. You know, if you're sitting there at the meeting obsessing about, like, I want the cookie, but it's unhealthy. It's bad for me. You know, right. just adding this layer of like, well, maybe it's bad for you to be sitting there stressing about it. And that's, exactly. it's just actually better for you to just eat the cookie and just take a moment <laughs> to, en- to enjoy it. Exactly. Yeah. That's yeah. really, that's really fascinating. Yeah. And looking at the cookie as neutral, I have permission to eat this. Do I even want it? Um, Maybe I'll eat it. And then assess how you feel afterwards. Was that satisfying to me? Does my stomach now feel gross? You know, just kind of like using it as a learning opportunity rather than, um, you know, this ultimate decision that has to be made this life or death you know yeah yeah my character my personal character as a human is like riding on whether or not i pick up this yes. cookie and eat yes. it oh my god yeah yeah which which ties into that discipline question that you had earlier because we kind of revere discipline in our society discipline is seen as good um it's virtuous but if if you're looking at your food and feeling pride in your discipline, maybe that's a little bit disordered. Maybe instead you can be more attuned to your body cues and decide Mm. what your body really wants and needs. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. I think we should make our way to whether or not there are, you have any like global recommendations for climbers, things we should be trying to eat, whatever that is, foods, macros, principles, Mm -hmm. whatever, and then anything we should avoid. I'm curious about Mm -hmm. that, whether that's, you know, artificial ingredients or whatever. Um, So let's get to that in a second. I do have one uh, thought. This just, I just remembered what I was thinking about earlier that I wanted to to say. You mentioned this early in the conversation. You were describing the eating disorder as being destructive. The eating order Mm -hmm. is trying to destroy us, or you, you said something along those lines. I'm really curious about that. Like, what is that? Because as you were talking about um, the sweet tooth thing, it just reminded me of this period of time when I was recovering where my body weight had kind of settled. I was kind of at the, honestly, at the same weight that I'm at now. And um, probably from like a biological standpoint had mostly recovered. I'd been eating more calories, whatever. But for a while, I was stuck in this like really nasty kind of all or nothing mindset that was almost this weird self-sabotage thing, you know, where like I wouldn't, I would go, you know, it would be like nine o'clock at night and I would drive to the grocery store and buy a pint of ice cream and like a, I don't know, another treat and just like eat them in the car and then like throw everything away at the grocery store garbage can because I felt embarrassed before I drove home. And like... I didn't even enjoy it. I was aware of that mm-hmm. at the time. Like, I'm mm-hmm. not enjoying this. I'm feeling gross right now. I feel shame. And I can't stop myself from yeah. doing this. And it was just this yeah. weird, total self-sabotage thing. What is that? Why do we do that? That is a great question. I think it stems from that long-term restriction. And that's pretty predictable. And that's pretty clear in eating disorder treatment. If you've had restriction on some level for any amount of time, it's going to backfire. Like you are going to binge or overeat and you're going to eat the foods that you were previously forbidden. And that's, that's a really predictable pattern. So that's why um, diets that are very restrictive or eliminate whole food groups or shun sugar or whatever are, don't work. Um, or they work until they don't, (laughs) they backfire. Like you mentioned, like the floodgates were open, you know, that's a very common experience. 
And so that's kind of what was going on. Like, it's this response that's like, I have been restricted for so long. Um, I'm just going to go eat all the things. And what's really interesting about it is it seems counterintuitive. So for example, if people feel addicted to food or feel out of control with food or have binging episodes with food, they feel like now I must abstain from that food because clearly I can't handle myself around that food. This is a food that is dangerous to me. I have no control. It has to be out of the house. I cannot allow it in my life. And what's interesting about that mindset is it actually makes things worse. So the answer is to actually allow that food in your life, unconditional permission at all times, which feels very scary and usually has to be done with professional support and therapy um, to understand what that looks like and how to implement that. Because there's that that aspect, it felt self-destructive to you and you didn't even enjoy it, but it was a result of that restriction and that deprivation that was happening. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it's it's interesting. I'm um, I've also read a lot about like habits, you know, mm-hmm. and um, something that's common. I think Steve Bechtel's talked about this. I've heard other authors talk about this, but you know, it's it's just stacking. Like we have a lot more willpower in the morning, and so just kind of stacking the cards in your favor, not having those easy decisions, basically basically making like unhelpful things harder for ourselves, you know, and making yeah. healthy things easier for ourselves. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which would make me think like, it's probably helpful to not have chips and ice cream in the house because when you're, when it's late at night and you're stressed and you're rushed on time, whatever, those are just such easy things to go for. Um, I don't know, but I've also, that's another thing that I've kind of shifted on, which is, for the first time in my life, honestly, in the last like year or two, I feel like I can have a bag of chips in the pantry and it'll take me like weeks to eat it because I just don't want chips that often because I'm satiated. I'm really satisfied with how I'm eating. So. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the first thing I do. If people come to me and they're like, I feel out of control with food. I'm eating at night. I'm binging all the things. First, we're like, are you eating regularly during the day? Is it nourishing, fueling food? Mm. You know, do you have any restrictions present? And then we try to make sure they're nourished and slowly lift all restrictions in a way that feels like it's not out of control for them. Yeah. Okay. I think that leads us into recommendations. Yeah. Do you have any global recommendations for people listening? Whether that's, you know, do, do you think about macros, like trying to hit certain numbers with certain macros at all? or principles around what we eat or important things to try to include in your diet? Do you have any just global recommendations for people? Yeah, well, this might not be a good answer, but it depends. (laughs) (laughs) I knew you were going to say that. It's great. (laughs) You knew it. You saw it coming. Um, In general, like healthy eating patterns, um, I'm thinking about two different things. One is overall health, like trying to prevent chronic disease and have longevity in life and feel healthy. And the other aspect is, actual climbing performance. Um, So if you're thinking about overall healthy eating patterns, it's kind of generic and it's um, not exciting. And it's probably something you've already heard, which is eat a variety of foods, lots of fruits and vegetables, whole grains, nuts and seeds, legumes, you know, lean protein, the whole bit, right? Like kind of a general variety of diet and normal diet pattern. But then when I'm thinking about climbing performance, I kind of think of it as a hierarchy. And this is with any athlete. I always want to make sure they're getting enough calories, first of all, like enough overall calories. Like that is the most important thing to be able to support their goals and their health and have that longevity in sport. 
prevent relative energy deficiency in sport, try to help prevent injuries, fuel their climbing goals. So enough overall calories, obviously that's different from every person. It's even can be different from day to day, depending on their training load. And then I look at the macros. So are they getting an appropriate amount of um, protein and carbs um, to support their goals? So in general for climbing, again, we don't have a ton of research on it, but borrowing from other sports and their research feels like about three to five grams per kilogram of carbs for climbing is a reasonable goal. If you are climbing heavily or it's very intense training or you have two a days or maybe a really long approach before you start climbing, then you would need more carbs that day. For protein, it really varies as well based on um, what your training cycle is and what your training load is. And if you're really doing a lot of strength training or if it's more just general climbing, but I would say anywhere between like 1.4 to 2 grams per kilogram per day is pretty appropriate for most climbers. 1.4 to 2 grams per kilogram. Okay. So that's actually, that's a little, yeah, that's like getting up towards one gram per pound. One gram. Yeah. Cause a pound is 2.2 right, or sorry, right, a right. kilogram is 2.2 pounds. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So um, that's kind of the baseline. Okay. And then I'm trying to do fast math here. So for me, for the carbs, I weigh around 170 pounds. So that would be roughly like 250 to 350 grams per day, something like that. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. Okay. That was good math. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I got my calculator out for that. <laughs> okay, cool. That's that's really helpful. And then any thoughts on uh food timing, certain foods to get more of? I mean, mm-hmm. you mentioned you mentioned that I guess already, but yeah, food timing or any other general recommendations? Yeah, so um you know, overall calories and then macros and then the timing is sort of the next piece of the puzzle. Like um when are you eating, how much are you eating? Um, so in general, eating regular amounts at regular intervals is helpful because it helps keep your body, it keeps your blood sugar more stable. It helps keep your body fueled throughout the day. Um, and then when I think about specific like sports nutrition timing, I think about, um, when are you going to work out and when did you eat before that? Like how long before that? And if it's been three or four hours, then have a pre-workout snack, like a simple carb, um, and, and if it's a really long training session, you know, or climbing session, obviously eat within the session too, especially if it's more than, you know, a couple hours, you're going to need to take some snack breaks and just feel regularly throughout that. So timing in and around and during the, the actual exercise is important. Um, and then timing, just, uh, eating enough food throughout the day, because after you climb or after you do any kind of workout, your body is recovering and repairing. Um, even 24 to 48 hours afterwards. So if you have large pockets of time where you're not eating, aside from sleeping, um, you're missing opportunities to fuel your body and give it those building blocks to rebuild and recover. So if you're not eating enough food, um, but you're putting a training stimulus on your body, you're not going to be able to adapt very well. You want to have enough food throughout the day um, to be able to really make those training adaptations. Okay. What about intermittent fasting? What about, you know, for me, I've noticed that I feel a little bit better and my blood sugar looks a little bit better if I don't eat right before bed. I mean, that's the simplest way for me to to do it is try to have dinner, you know, around six or seven o'clock and eat a big enough dinner that I don't have to eat at 10 p.m. right before I go to bed. Thoughts on that? Is there any value in that or is that risky behavior? What do you think? 
Uh, no, it's fine if it works for you. And if you feel like you're getting enough food throughout the rest of the day, um, if you are hungry, uh, respond to those hunger cues and honor that. You know, if you're like, oh, I had a dinner, but I'm also really hungry and it's 930 at night, I wouldn't arbitrarily just pick an intermittent fasting window and avoid like not honor that hunger because your body is asking you for food that it needs. Um, intermittent fasting can be useful for some people just as a way to um, structure their day or to lose weight in a calorie deficit, but there's nothing magical about it. And I'm not a big fan, um, especially because I mostly work with athletes and people with eating disorders and athletes with eating disorders. <laughs> so intermittent fasting is pretty contraindicated in all of those, uh -huh. those people. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, let's jump to a few listener questions. There's a few uh, questions that I got that are relevant to everything we're talking about right now. Yeah, let's go there. And then I want to ask you about common eating strategies and what your thoughts are on diets like, um, okay. you know, the paleo diet, the vegan diet, the keto diet, carnivore, whatever, if there's, if you know, if you have any general thoughts on those sorts of things. But let's see here. This question is from Carl. How do you manage intuitive eating strategies for people that don't get hungry with regular patterns? For example, when I tried this approach, some days I would just have one large meal and a snack, which was likely 800 calories below my normal daily expenditure. Mm -hmm. That's a great question. So intuitive eating um, does rely on those body cues, so hunger and fullness, but it also has the principle of gentle nutrition, meaning if you don't have those body cues, you layer in general nutrition principles that we know work for people. So if you don't have hunger cues, which sometimes people don't, um, sometimes they don't have them because of medications. Sometimes you don't have a hunger cues if you've been chronically dieting or recovering from an eating disorder. So for whatever reason, if hunger cues are absent, you still know logically that your body needs to eat. Um, so you layer in that gentle nutrition principle and just know, I need to have this food at this moment in time, even if my body isn't asking me for it. Mm. That happens with uh, endurance athletes a lot also. You know, if you go on a four-hour bike ride, sometimes your appetite's suppressed, you just don't feel awesome. Um, but you know you need to eat. You just expended energy for four hours. It's really important to replenish and refuel. So you can use an intuitive eating framework to be attuned to your body. But if those cues are absent, use logic and general nutrition principles to fill in the gaps there. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. That's helpful. I'm, I'm curious with that. Do you have um, resources or recommendations for athletes to try to figure out how much they quote should be eating to basically to make sure that they're getting enough calories? Mm -hmm. um, you know, I've, I've had some conversations with Tom Herbert on the podcast and, you know, he's a big proponent of trying to get athletes to eat more, basically to try mm -hmm. to find the upper end of how many calories they can eat and sustain a healthy body weight just to be able to train harder and to train more. Mm -hmm. And uh, he has, you know, for people listening, that's a great couple episodes and he has some uh, great tools there. But yeah, what, what are your thoughts on that? There's these amazing people called registered dietitians. <laughs> <laughs> you could just ask one of them. <laughs> no. uh, I know that um, not everyone has access to a dietitian though. So there are resources. Um, I mean, there's energy calculators you can find online they'll get you kind of within the range, um, which may be helpful just to know how much you're eating. Um, you can also just figure out, like you can you can figure out based on a calculator online, like how much do I think I'm eating? I think Tom Herbert even has one on his website. 
here's like an Excel spreadsheet you can download. So that might be a good place to start. And then use your outcomes to inform what you do with that. So for example, if you figure out I should be within this calorie range, I think I'm going to eat that for a while and see how it goes. Mm. And if you feel like, wow, this is really working for me. I feel well-fueled. I feel, I don't feel gassed during my sessions. I feel like I'm making some training gains. You know, my body and my brain feel great. Then, you know, that's probably within your range. If you start gaining or losing weight unintentionally, you know that that was not within your range. So you can, you can use that starting place to kind of inform where you go from there. And, you know, go seek out a registered dietitian if you have access to one and you have the ability to um, just take the time to do that if that's really important to you. And that would be helpful as well. Okay. Great. This question is from Sean. Assuming you agree with the general principle of one-to-one ratio of grams of protein to pounds of body weight each day, and you shared your numbers, they're a little bit lower than that, but kind of close to that range. Sean asks, how do you get that much protein in a healthy way? I find myself having two protein shakes a day in addition to my normal three meals, and it can feel excessive. I also try to eat mostly vegetarian. So is it just a matter of eating more meat during regular meals? Um, yeah, you can do that. Or you can just double check and make sure you really do need that much protein. Um, maybe you're not in a heavy training load or a um, you know muscle building phase. Maybe you don't need quite that much. Um, but if you do need that much and you need to hit it, protein shakes are useful and adding um, any kind of a protein throughout your meal. So if you feel um, there, it, it does become problematic if you feel too full from the protein, because that's usually pretty satiating. So if you're eating a lot of protein at the expense of not getting enough calories, that can be problematic for people. Mm. And then you can just back off on the protein a little bit because you may not need quite that much. But yeah, adding adding some protein to the meals or using protein shakes. I'm I like protein shakes um, for a number of reasons. Um, in context, again, it depends, <laughs> but they can be really useful if it's hard to hit your protein goals from food alone. Um, they can be really useful if they're just convenient. Like maybe um, you're training, but then you need to go to work and you don't have an option to eat until four hours later. You can at least drink a protein shake and eat a banana with that to kind of fill in the gap until your meal happens. So just the practicality, like thinking about the structure of your day, protein shakes can be helpful there. Okay. And then his question made me want to ask you about meat, what what your thoughts are on mm-hmm. meat. And you mentioned this morning you had a potato with sour cream and bacon bits and yes. uh, and chocolate milk. So I assume you eat meat and dairy. Yeah. What I is do. What is your take on meat and animal products? There's... A lot of mixed research. Um, I think the meat's totally fine. If you look at the research, some of it is kind of problematic in just the methodology, or sometimes we can only make correlations, but we don't know causations. And some of it is muddled up. So for example, like red meat, there's a lot of controversy around red meat. Is it fine? Is it not? I eat red meat personally because I enjoy it and I think it's totally fine. Um, But some of the studies like lump red meat, like a whole cut of like lean beef in with like processed meat, like pastrami and pepperoni and, you know, really heavily processed meats. And so you're like, how, how can you even draw any kind of conclusion if those meats were all lumped together in the same category? Cause those are very different. So I, I think meat's fine personally. Um, but I also have athletes that are 
vegan and vegetarian and I fully support them in that and their own decisions. Um, so it just, I think it really depends on the person and their own ethics and how they feel about the meat. Um, and also just if they enjoy the meat or not, and they want it in their lives and I can support people either way, but I enjoy meat. I like it. I actually feel really hungry if I don't eat meat, even mm. if it was enough calories and it was enough protein and fiber, there's just something about the meat that's really satiating for me. So I have it in my life. Yeah. Yeah. I feel that way too. I, I like what you said too. I mean, something that I'm always surprised by, and I, I probably used to do this too, but um, I just think it's so annoying how um, how binary we are as humans in our thinking about so many things and, you know, eating yeah. meat, non-meat, we just lump it all together. And like you said, you know, I, I feel better eating meat as well, but not just any meat, like it's really high quality. I try to get like grass fed, grass finished whenever I can. And I'm sure I wouldn't feel as good if I was eating pepperoni sticks all day, you know? Yep. Yeah. Or like hot dog doesn't really do it for me, <laughs> you know? Yeah. But like a, a nice lean cut of steak. Oh yeah. You know? So it's just, it's just, you know, what makes sense for you? What do you want for your diet patterns? And the meat obviously has like an ethical, moral, tinge to it. So just depending on your own um, views there. Yeah. Okay. What about fat? You mentioned earlier when you were talking about general dietitian guidelines, uh, you mentioned lean protein. And just now you said a lean cut of steak or a lean cut of meat. How do you mm -hmm. think about fat, both from animal products, saturated fat, and in general in the diet? How do you think about mm -hmm. fat? Yeah, that's really important. Obviously, it's essential. Like we need it in our, in our diet. Um, it plays a lot of roles in the body. Um, so we definitely need it. And don't shy away from foods that have full fat in them. I really enjoy ice cream. <laughs> I eat cheese, you know, I eat these things and I think that's totally fine. Um, but there are some nuances there where if you're eating a lot of it or you're, you're, you have a lot of fat in your diet or your main source is a lot of saturated fats, sometimes that can lead to higher risk for heart disease. So something to consider there, but definitely fat is useful in your diet and we all need it. Okay. All right. Let's see a couple more listener questions here. This is from Vicente. Uh, any recommendations about supplements? Uh, do you have any preferred supplements that you like to include in a healthy diet? And also, do you have a preferred snack before training? Mm, yeah. Um, so supplements are... Uh, a really sketchy area, like especially in the US, they aren't well regulated. So I always recommend that if you are going to take a supplement, first you ask yourself a few questions. One is, are you eating enough in general anyway? Um, a supplement can help, but it'll only help marginally in most situations. So if you have a limited food budget, spend it first on food rather than supplements. Are you eating enough? Are you eating the right kinds of foods? You know, are you satisfied with the foods you're eating? And then supplements can kind of fill in the gap. Like we mentioned, protein shakes, um, that's considered a supplement for some people. So yeah, they can be useful, um, but are they safe? Are they effective? And are you doing other things that are also useful for your training? So you would look for um, third-party tested supplements, which are NSF for sport and also informed sport. Those are two companies that batch test supplements and make sure they aren't contaminated supplements um can have it's actually kind of horrifying what's in them like um there's uh researchers that just take a bunch of supplements and they batch test them to see what's in them and publish that the results and they found 
heavy metals like lead and mercury in supplements, uh, pro-hormones, steroids, steroid-like com- compounds, ephedrine, melamine. Like, horrible, horrible things in these supplements because they're not regulated and the companies, you never know what the company is putting in the supplement. What's on the label might not necessarily be what's in the bottle. Um, so you definitely want third-party tested. Um, but beyond that, I think that creatine for climbers would be really useful because it helps with feeling less time to fatigue. Like you can you can go a little bit longer and feel a little bit less fatigued. Um, you can feel a little bit more powerful in the lifts and the moves that you do. Um, so if that's a supplement that you're looking for, um, that might be useful. Always ask your doctor before taking any supplement, make sure it's not contraindicated for you. Um, but creatine is a pretty well-researched regu- well and pretty safe one that's pretty effective. So that was that would be one that I would suggest looking into. Other ones may or may not be helpful, just depending on what your goals are. So beta alanine could be helpful. That one is just basically a buffer. So that uh, kind of pumpy, burny feeling that you feel when you're climbing, beta alanine can help buffer that feeling and help you climb a little bit better without that sensation. Um, some people find it useful and some don't. But again, ask your doctor, make sure it's third-party tested. Um, and make sure you're just getting a good overall diet to begin with. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Is there any way to know if you just go to the store and you want to buy some creatine or something, is there any way to check and see which brands are third-party tested and are safer options? Yeah. So if you Google um, NSF for sport or you Google informed sport or informed choice, um, their website will come up and you see their logo. Um, so if you look for that logo on the bottle at the supplement store, you know it's third-party tested and it's safe. Um, those two websites also have a search engine feature on them where you can search different products and types um, to make sure they're certified. And they both also have free apps you can download. So you can download the app and just have it on your phone. And if you're at the supplement store looking for something, you can pull up the app and see if it's third-party tested as well. Okay. Perfect. I will put those resources in the show notes for people for your convenience. Yes. (laughs) Let's see here. What else do we have? I'm going to ask one more listener question, and then I think we should uh, go back to our outline. This question is from Jamie. What are weight loss strategies for people that struggle with higher body fat percentage? I seem to be stuck in the 17 to 18% range, and it's very difficult to go below that with a regular omnivore diet. Do you have any recommendations for Jamie? I believe Jamie is male. Not 100% sure, but I think he's male. So 17 to 18% male. It's a little bit high, not terribly high, but yeah. Do you have any thoughts? Um, I don't even feel like I can ethically answer that question, honestly. Okay. Um, go see a sports dietitian and and see if that's even appropriate for you or necessary. I wouldn't want to encourage anyone to lose fat or go on a diet, especially if it would be triggering for an eating disorder or if it's not even relevant or necessary for your own health. Um, I'd also have a discussion with the dietitian about how um, you learned your body composition and if that was a valid measurement or not. So I wouldn't even really want to delve into some tips on how to lose weight if it's maybe not even thing that needs to happen. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. No, that's a great answer. Okay. Thank you. Um, okay. So I wanted to ask you about, there's, there's two more listener questions and I think we should circle back to them later in the conversation. So let's go okay. over here. I wanted to ask you about 
different eating strategies or diets or, or frameworks and what your thoughts are. You said that you work with some vegetarians and vegans. Um, what are your thoughts on following a, quote, diet or way of eating, like the vegan diet or paleo or uh, ketogenic? Is it the same? Does it depend? Do you have any things that feel generally concerning to you? What are your thoughts? Mm, yeah, I feel like um, the ketogenic diet has very little utility, um, especially for climbers. Unless it works for you, there are some outliers. Um, There's some people that feel like I can do this. It's fine. It's not disordered. I actually feel really good on it and they can perform on it. In general, if you know anything about biology or like the energy systems in the body, your body does need carbohydrate um, and a certain amount to be able to function well, especially your muscles and your brain. So in general, ketogenic diet is not really useful, um, especially if you want to be active on any level. But for some reason, um, some people seem to respond really well to it. So if that's your jam, go for it. <laughs> but I don't recommend it as a blanket recommendation. Um, and usually it, it can be pretty restrictive and have a lot of side effects with it. Mm. Yeah, I was curious about that. I mean, like, to what extent can we adapt to things like that? Because, you know, I've geeked out on this. Obviously, I tried the, for people listening that know my story, I tried the ketogenic diet for a while. And I generally felt good on it. I think my problem was that I wasn't eating enough food in hindsight um, yeah. because it's really satiating. You don't really get as hungry, which is why it's an effective weight loss diet. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like the faster study studying cyclists on a ketogenic diet and just seeing the extent to which their energy systems adapted and how high some of those athletes were able to take their their aerobic output. So they're able to train at a much higher intensity in an aerobic state, not burning glycogen than the average person who trains, you know, fueled by carbs, I think is really interesting. But I'm, I'm curious, like, is that, is there selection bias there, do you think? Is it genetic? Is it something we can adapt to? Is it just safer to just stick with eating carbs, <laughs> you know? And because that's, yeah. that's another thing about the keto thing. I found it tricky. I, I felt like there was a lot of kind mm -hmm. of tinkering and, um, and it just felt a little bit more complex and tricky than just including carbs mm -hmm. in my diet. So I've come back to eating mm -hmm. carbs again, but yeah, I'm curious to get your thoughts. Yeah. There's a pretty big body of research on it in athletes and basically all of it says your performance is either the same, but you feel worse. Like your rate of perceived exertion is worse or your performance is worse on a ketogenic diet. So, mm. um, I mean, that's, that's like most of the research. Um, so I, I just, I don't know why it would be effective for someone. Um, but I know some people really do feel fine on it. And so I want to honor that. And I know there are outliers even in the research where it's like, for some reason, this person was great, but hmm. everyone else felt terrible, you know? So if that's you go for it, but there are some just like long-term health considerations there. Like, um, if you're cutting out a lot of whole grains and fruits and vegetables, you're missing out on a lot of fiber, which is useful um, for colon health, you know, for heart disease. So there's some things to just consider like, wow, if I'm being that really restrictive and not eating a lot of variety of food, even if I feel good, or even if it's working for me, is this something that will be useful for me in the long term? But yeah, I've seen a lot of people try keto and um, it did not go well. And sometimes it triggers an eating disorder. So I'm always very careful about, mm. um, about that, you know, like just any diet, like you mentioned, um, my thoughts on vegan or vegetarianism or anything like that. Like, is it 
uh, ask yourself, why do you want to do it? What do you want the diet to do for you? What do you think is it's going to do for you? And is that right? And then um, is that sustainable for you once you try it? And then what were the outcomes for you? Did you feel okay on it? How was your mental health? How was your physical health? Vegan and vegetarians can be really, really healthy, or they can be really um, have a lot of nutrient deficiencies. So it can go either way. If you're vegan or vegetarian, that can be from a place of self-care or care for the environment of the earth, or it can be masking an eating disorder or trigger an eating disorder. So um, yeah, there's actually a lot of vegans and vegetarians that also have eating disorders. So um, sometimes they're saying, oh, I'm doing this diet for my health. And really it's the eating disorder wanting to be restrictive there. So there's a lot of things to consider with that. You can definitely be healthy and um, have a good relationship with food and be a vegan or a vegetarian. But just ask yourself, what, why am I doing this? What do I want out of it? You know, what's the purpose for this? Is this going to be sustainable? Yeah. I love it. I mean, it's such a strong theme in this conversation is just mindfulness, self-awareness, you know, uh-huh. self-reflection. Yeah. And I mean, it's it's kind of fascinating that that is not inherent in our culture. You know, like we don't we, mm. just as a baseline, like growing up as a kid, I mean, really until my like later 20s when I started thinking about performance and trying to optimize performance, we, I just never thought to think about food. You know, I, I, we just mm-hmm. aren't taught to think about food, to really think about what it's doing for us and, you know, appreciate it, appreciate where it comes from, appreciate the impact on the environment with food, appreciate that the food is literally what makes us us. You know, none of that. I, I just kind of ate mindlessly. And uh, it's just f- funny that we even have to learn that. But that's, a, anyway, I, I love that. And I think that's yeah. cool that that's such a strong theme in this conversation. Yeah. Let's see here. Okay. Two more listener questions. And then we should talk about uh, youth, if there's any specific recommendations Definitely. for youth climbers. How are you doing on yeah. time? By I'm the okay. way, you're okay? Okay. Yeah. All right. These are great questions. This one is from Cody what is a good starting point for someone who's trying to heal an unhealthy relationship with food, specifically eating feelings and an all or nothing sort of mentality? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, If you are able, and this is available to you, um, go find a therapist that specializes in this. Um, Usually eating disorder therapists are great. Even if you don't have an eating disorder, they'll be informed in how to help you with that. If you don't have the option to do that, um, some things you can start with are um, thinking about if you feel like you're emotionally eating, um, try to start to notice patterns. So for example, if you're emotionally eating, were you under fueling the rest of the day? Did you get enough food throughout the rest of the day? And did you get it at regular intervals? Or is the emotional eating actually not emotional eating? It's maybe a biological response and your body's asking you for more food, but Mm. it feels very emotional. It feels kind of panicky. Um, Maybe there's shame associated with it afterwards. So sometimes emotional eating is not emotional eating. It's actually just eating to make up for the food that was restricted. You can ask yourself, are there any restrictions in my life um, with food? And can I lift any of them? Can I give myself permission to eat all foods at any point? Um, You can also ask yourself, was I vulnerable when I was emotionally eating in any way? 
So did I have a stressful day? Did I have a fight with a coworker? Did I not get enough sleep? Am I starting to feel sick? You know, did I get some bad news about my bank account? You know, whatever it is, like, was I vulnerable in any way? And if so, did that translate into eating as a coping mechanism? And if so, what could I maybe do instead of eating? What do I need in that moment if I'm not truly hungry? Maybe I need to connect with someone. Maybe I could call a friend. Maybe I can pet my cat. Um, maybe I just need a walk. Maybe I need to be out in nature a little bit. Um, maybe I need to ask someone for help and I'm overextended and I actually need to take some things off my plate. So usually emotional eating comes from a place of vulnerability on some level. And if you can uncover those patterns and get curious about what's going on there and look at the emotional eating without guilt or shame, but rather as a learning tool to get curious about why you're doing that coping mechanism, that can help you figure out what to do next. Awesome. Thank you for that. Yeah, that's really helpful. And uh, this is somewhat connected. I liked this question a lot. This is from Ren. And Ren asks, how can all of us as climbers contribute to a healthy environment surrounding food and body image in our sport? If someone is participating in unhealthy behavior or making toxic comments, how do you think about when we should step in and respond mm -hmm. versus when to stay quiet? Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is a really good question. And this is really difficult because we as humans want to be able to interact with people in like a likable way. Like you don't want to have conflict or confrontation. And yet if you see something, um, it would be useful to stand up and say something. So um, if you see something that seems problematic, like um, maybe someone is saying, oh, if you if you lost 10 pounds, I bet you could send that project, you know speak up and say, oh, you know, I'm going to try some other things. I don't think my weight is the issue. You know, I see this a lot in youth climbing, which we can touch on because um, I'm on the USA Climbing Medical Committee. So we have these conversations about how do we give resources to coaches? How do we make sure that um, we can foster a good relationship with food and body and sport for these youth? And if there are conversations or comments about, like, for example, um, one coach said he stopped letting the kids have snack break, even though it was a three-hour training session multiple times a week, that he didn't let them eat a snack in their three-hour session. Wow. Also, they had been at school all day long. So they go to school all day long. They're pretty hungry. I don't know if they had a snack before climbing, but then they climbed for three hours and the coach said, I'm not letting you guys have a snack break because you're not bringing healthy enough food. So that's problematic. Like that's, that's mm. something that is not okay to say because you're judging the food that they're bringing. And the kids just need to be fueled, right? Mm. So just like speaking up and kind of fostering that good relationship around food and knowing that it's not all black and white. Um, for example, if a kid brings gummies to climbing practice, that's actually a perfect food to eat, you know, halfway through climbing session because it's just quick sugar. It's quickly digested. It settles well in the stomach. It gets into the working muscles quickly. Um, but it's if they're bringing like Swedish fish, a coach might say, well, that's not healthy. You either can't bring that or you need to bring something else when really that's the perfect food for them. Hmm. Or you don't know what the kid had access to at home. You know, they're just right. probably bringing what their parent gave them or what they could grab in the pantry. Maybe there's some food insecurity there. Maybe they're going through an eating disorder and their therapist is challenging them, making them eating a fear food in a place that feels safe for them. Hmm. You know, wow. so there's a lot of different things to consider there. 
Um, so to judge people for their food or their weight is not really helpful and you don't know what's really going on behind the scenes. So I think we as climbers and coaches and parents and anybody could, before you make a comment, uh, just refrain and think, maybe I don't know the whole story here. And you can, if you have a, to respond to that, like if you're the recipient of the comment, um, you can just say, oh, that's interesting that you think you can judge my food choices. I'm curious about that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> or you could be a little snarky, you know, like, oh, hey, eyes on your own plate. Or mm. um, I think this is more about you than me, you know, because usually if they are making a comment about it, they might have a disrupted relationship with their own food and body. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you can say things like that if you feel like it's appropriate. But I do feel like it's important to um, kind of set the tone and have good conversations around food and catch it if it's going wrong, if it's yeah. going south. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any, that's, that's super great. I, I love that. Do you have any thoughts for jokes at the crag or at the gym that aren't targeted at anyone in particular? Maybe it's a mm -hmm. self-deprecating, you know, throwaway, yep. funny comment, whatever. I'm seeing less and less of that, but that's definitely something I saw a lot of early in climbing and even participated in. And now I'm recognizing like how damaging that can be if someone overhears it who is triggered by that or just how insensitive mm -hmm. it can be or even like how much how likely it's it's like you know it, it could even be that person crying out for help or, or something in a way or yeah. acknowledging like some issue that they're having that they're hiding and just making a joke about it but it's it's uncomfortable right like if you're yeah. just standing in a group of people and someone makes that joke but it's not at anybody right is it appropriate to say anything? It's certainly easier to just kind of chuckle and, and roll right over it. But, you know, is that doing them a disservice? Yeah. How would you think about that? That's hard. I mean, because you don't want to be like this, like, eating disorder warrior, like, <laughs> jumping in and <laughs> correcting everyone's conversations. Um, right. So, yeah, maybe you read the room, you know, or if if you feel comfortable saying something in the moment in front of everybody. Be like, oh, you know, I've, I've actually gone through my own eating disorder experience and um, maybe we just don't joke about that. I'd feel more comfortable if you didn't. Um, then you can put the burden on you where it feels like you're, you're asking for help and usually people can honor that mm. rather than calling them out and saying, you said something wrong, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so you could put it on you and say like, oh, I feel uncomfortable with that comment, you know, let's not talk about weight like that or something like that. Um, you could also just talk to them later um, separately and say, I noticed that joke. Are you okay? You know, are you feeling okay? Do you need help? Um, how's your own relationship with your body right now? You know, and come from a place of concern and see if that's helpful to them. Um, that's, that's hard. I mean, it's a hard dynamic and it's not like we want to be weird about it but we also want to make sure that climbers feel like they're in a safe space mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. no that's great yeah those are really helpful thoughts thank you okay let's make our way towards youth climbers um but i have to check this box before we move on because i said i would cover it and i haven't asked it yet okay are there any foods we should avoid in you know oh, given yeah, given our modern no you're fine given our modern food environment um with you know chemically designed food that comes from labs, weird ingredients, things like that. Anything we should avoid or is that an unhelpful way of, of thinking about food? Yeah. 
you did ask that question. I totally didn't answer it. So I'm sorry. <laughs> um, I think that there's nothing you need to avoid unless you are truly allergic to it or it's contraindicated for your own health. So for example, if you have celiac disease, yes, avoid gluten, of course. Right. Um, but no, I don't think there's any food you necessarily have to avoid. And to to think about food in that way is kind of narrow thinking um, because our food over time, like if you think about a lifetime of food choices, the foods that you might want to avoid, you probably won't be eating very often. Mm. Like if you eat candy or whatever it is, or some sort of ingredient that you think is, you know, like, like harmful to you, you're probably not going to be eating it very often. And the food system in the U.S. is pretty darn safe. Um, so I don't ever recommend people having to avoid foods or like, oh, at all costs, definitely don't eat this thing um, because I feel like that's less helpful and more restrictive. It kind of gets into that eating disorder territory. The only food that maybe people might want to consider avoiding is alcohol, if that's appropriate for them. Okay. If they have like alcohol use disorder or they just know it doesn't feel well for them. I mean, it literally is a toxin. So that's something you can consider avoiding if you feel like that's appropriate. But some people are totally fine with it or they just do some social drinking here and there. It's not a big deal. Yeah. Okay. Great. Tell me more about your master's thesis and working oh, with, yeah. uh, with youth climbers. Yeah. Um, so I, my son, I mentioned was on the comp team. So for my master's, uh, research project, I decided to use that, um, because I felt like, again, there was that void in climbing research and I didn't know any studies. And I think this was the first study that actually looked at the prevalence of eating disorders in climbing. And since then, there have been a couple more. Um, we just published one. Dr. Lene Jobert was the head author on it. So we surveyed IFSC uh, female licensed climbers and asked them their prevalence. But I think my master's was the first one where we surveyed adolescents. So it was climbers, just, you know, these youth climbers on the comp team, um, ages 11 through 17. And I asked them what they ate. I calculated out their energy and macro targets, and I also gave them a validated survey that asked them a lot of questions about their relationship with food, and that can predict risk for eating disorders. Um, so we found that, by and large, the climbers did not eat enough food, which is a little disturbing because they're youth, so they're growing. Mm. Like, they need to eat enough for not only their sport, but also all the other things they do in the day with school but also fueling growth and puberty. But we did find that the prevalence of eating disorders in this group was pretty low. There was only one kid that triggered. Um, so that was kind of relieving, although one is too much. Mm. Um, but it was a very small sample. It was only 22 kids. So we definitely need more research. It was just considered kind of a pilot study. Like, let's just test this out and see how it goes. And then maybe we can do a bigger scale later on. So I don't know what the prevalence is for youth climbers. All we have is that one little study. Mm. Yeah. What was your like internal takeaway from from doing that project? I mean, like, is there anything, you know, let's just say there's lots of parents listening to this podcast right now, potentially some youth coaches uh, or people that have the ear of youth coaches. What are things that you wish parents and youth coaches knew or thought more about um, any tools you could give them to mitigate risk in their athletes for under eating or eating disorders? 
Yeah, eating enough. I mean, these kids need a lot of food and it's easy for them to skip. Um, I see this a lot in my teen clients. Um, They wake up late, they roll out of bed, they're in a rush, they skip breakfast, they go to school, they eat a little bit at lunch, they come home and eat a snack and then maybe some dinner and that's it, right? But if they're training or they, um, sometimes they have multiple sports, sometimes they have two day, all day long tournaments on the weekends, They also sometimes have PE class layered in there. So they're really, really active and they need a lot of food. So um, I think parents and coaches could be aware of that and be really on top of it, like um, providing a good, good environment for the kids to eat a lot of food, like setting up some systems that make sense for them. So if the barrier is, oh, I wake up too late and I don't get breakfast can you wake up earlier? Can you have a breakfast sandwich and a smoothie ready to go that you can eat on the bus or on the drive over? You know, like, um, can you sip fluids with calories during your class if you're not allowed to eat? Can you pack multiple items at your lunch? What can you have for the after school snack? Here are some non-perishables to have in your climbing bag. Like make sure you have these foods at all times in your climbing bag that you can grab and that are available. You know, so just making the food environment set up so that those barriers are removed and they have access to enough food um, can be really helpful. Um, and, And they can probably see better performance with that because they'll be fueled. I'm seeing some kids that they're having delayed puberty, maybe they're missing periods or they haven't even started their period when they should have. We get some bone scans sometimes just to make sure their bone density is on track and sometimes it's not. Mm. Um, So there's a lot of concern there. Even if they don't have an eating disorder, if they're just not eating enough, it can be problematic because these kids are building their bone density and they're building up their brain volume and development until their early 20s. And you sort of only get one shot at that and Mm. it's in your puberty and in your teens. So if they're under eating and very active, they might have lower bone density than they should have on the the tail end when they're done growing. And what do you recommend for kids in that situation? Is it just a matter of more calories in general or is it, you Mm -hmm. know, trying to get more of specific types of food? Yeah, it's usually more calories in general. Usually their parents are pretty good about giving them a healthy variety of foods. Um, So it's usually more calories in general, just can you eat more and, um, how do you need to feel like before and during and after climbing to make sure that your climbing session is set up so that you're not running on fumes because you just went through a full day of school okay. <laughs> and possibly PE also. <laughs> yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. Uh, that just reminds me too. We never talked about the, your, your favorite pre-workout or pre-climbing snack because oh, yeah. we talked about supplements. Sorry. Yeah. Do you have a favorite yeah, yeah. snack for yourself, for clients, recommendations, anything? Um, yeah. So if it's immediately before a workout, like you've only got, 60 or 30 minutes before you're about to go climb or workout. Um, something that's a simple carbohydrate is really useful because it's quickly digested. So you don't want a lot of protein or fiber or fat. So um, it, that would be like a handful of pretzels, maybe some gummies, a banana, a piece of fruit, some dried fruit, some fruit juice, uh, some dry cereal that's kind of low fiber, like maybe some Rice Krispies or checks or something like that. So those kinds of things are pretty useful because they can settle well in your stomach and and not like sit like a rock while you're trying to climb. Bad idea, like giant enchilada, you know, like <laughs> uh-huh. giant bowl of chili, you know, stuff like that. That's going to take a long time to digest. Save that for afterwards or for if you have a long time to digest before you climb. Okay. Yeah. So I like just um, grabbing a handful of pretzels or like a little white mini bagel 
and eating that before I go work out. That works pretty well for me. Okay. Do you try to get protein before or mid training session or climbing session? Um, if I haven't eaten in a really long time and I feel pretty hungry, I do because that just helps my stomach not feel so desperately hungry. But I don't like to get protein if it's going to feel like it's going to take a long time to digest. So like I wouldn't eat a piece of meat, but I might eat like a, a chocolate milk or a protein shake because the liquid is just empties out in your stomach a little bit faster. If you're going longer and a low intensity, like maybe it's just you're hanging out at the crag and you're just climbing all day long. Um, definitely have some protein there because you you can have time to digest it and you can um, feel more stable with your blood sugar. But if I'm going to go out like on a run, then I just eat a little bit of carbs and go out and run. I don't really want protein in my stomach. It feels gross mm. to me at mm -hmm. that point. And it, it doesn't really do much to fuel your run. Um, the carbs are more useful for that. What about for strength training? Is there value in having protein like in the bloodstream in your system going into a strength training session? Um, not if you eat enough protein overall throughout the day and oh, okay. afterwards. It okay. doesn't really matter, but you can. It's not going to be harmful, you know, as long as you can tolerate it. If it feels okay in your stomach. Yeah. This has been awesome. This is amazing. I, I want to touch base with you, see if there's, let's kind of like scan the outline and see if there's anything that yeah, we yeah. missed. Just going back to um, you feeling coming into this conversation that climbers deserve more and that you want this to be a really great resource. Anything that deserves more of our time or that we missed or that you want to add? Yeah, I think we could just touch on the recent study we did with the IFSC climbers. I could just give you kind of the highlights on that one. I would love to hear that. And that was with Amity Warm, right? Yes. Uh-huh. She was a co-author. Yeah. Dr. Lene Jobert was the lead author. Um, Amity Warm was on there and I was, and, um, a couple of, uh, other people on there. Um, one guy out of Norway that does a lot of climbing research and one guy from the IFSC was an author on there. So we all kind of came together. We felt like actually the impetus for this was, again, there's no research on this, right? Like we don't know the prevalence of amenorrhea in climbers and we didn't know a lot of information about why the amenorrhea might be occurring. So for those that are listening, amenorrhea is um, a missing period in um, females. So that's problematic. Um, that's a red flag that you're not eating enough or something else might be going on there. So we basically just designed a survey and sent it out to the IFSC licensed female climbers and looked at the responses. So we asked them if they had any menstrual disturbances, if they were missing their period or if it was irregular or if they had a very long time between cycles. And then we tried to ask questions that helped us figure out why that might be. So for example, did you try to lose weight? And was that correlated with your period going away? Did you try to restrict your eating? Do you have an eating disorder? Do you have a higher training load? Do you have any injuries? Things like that. So we found out the prevalence was 15.8% of them had amenorrhea. And a couple of those were just attributed to probably birth control. Like we asked questions about birth control because obviously that can stop your period. Um, so that may not be problematic. You know, if you're on birth control and you're missing your period, that makes sense. But a lot of them actually did have some disordered eating patterns. So 26% of them said they had had disordered eating at some point in their lives or currently. And 37% um, of them said they sometimes struggle with a food relationship. And 14% of them said they 
um, dislike their food relationship. Is this percentages of the people that have amenorrhea? The people that responded. Oh, sorry, the people that responded total. Yeah. Total. So the people that had amenorrhea, um, I'd have to stratify that out. I'd have to look at it. Yeah. Yeah. But those percentages you just gave me was of all IFSC. Of all the respondents. Oh, I do have that number actually. For the ones that did have amenorrhea, 13.5 of them had struggled with disordered eating. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, they did say like, some of them did say, yes, I try to lose weight um, for a competition or I try to weight cycle. And some of them also like had increased training loads and lost their period or had restricted eating and lost their period or it became irregular. So those, those were correlated too. Like if you're working out more, but not eating enough to cover it, that's probably problematic, <laughs> you know, and same with if you have some disordered eating there. So mm -hmm. it was just interesting um, just to start that conversation, like start the, the data there and just understand, you know, what might be going on with these climbers. Should we even be concerned? You know, what's the prevalence there and what do we do moving forward? So the IFSC has this data. This is actually open access, so anyone can look it up. But it was really cool to work with the IFSC on that because they're very aware of this and they want to be able to make sure their climbers are safe. And same with USA. Climbing Medical Committee, we've had lots of conversations about this and how to make sure we're, our climbers are safe, um, safe to compete and medically stable there. Mm. Yeah. That's great. Okay. Should we, should we do some summaries? Sure. I, I want to just, yeah, kind of give you... Uh, give you the the stand here, the the soapbox, I guess, if we will, like talking about um, everything that we've talked about, all the work that you do. Any final kind of thoughts or message that you want to put out for climbers, for listeners tuning into this conversation? You know, any encouragement, uh, recommendations that you want to leave people with, or anything like that, as far as prevention or yeah, anything. Yeah. What, what comes to eat mind? Enough. For you? <laughs> eat, eat enough. Eat enough. <laughs> <laughs> Don't overthink it. <laughs> it doesn't great. have to be restrictive. Just eat enough. Yeah. I I wrote the book Nutrition for Climbers, Fuel for the Send. So that has good information. If I can do a little shameless plug of there. Of course, um, of course. I'll you know, link that's, to it. that's a resource if you're wondering about more nutrition information. Uh just yeah, eat enough. Like it, it doesn't have to be as complicated as we think it is, and it doesn't have to be as restrictive as we think it is. Mm. That's great. Anything else that we missed? I don't think so. This has been great. Thank you so much. Of course. My pleasure. Yeah, it's this has been awesome. I've really enjoyed this conversation. It's been fascinating. It's been helpful for me, even though I feel like I'm in a good place. It's... Uh, yeah, it's it's always illuminating to have conversations like this, and um, you're a pers perfect person to to talk about all this with. So thank you for yeah. your time today. Yeah, thank you for sharing your story over and over again. I think it's really helpful. Yeah, I thank you for saying that. I hope so. I mean, my hope, like we talked about earlier, is just that other people don't have to learn this stuff the hard way um, and can hopefully yeah, learn exactly. from my mistakes. And I already, you know, it already happened. So. If I can turn it into something helpful, then that's great. Uh, where can people find you and what are you excited about right now? What's next for you and your practice? Yeah, so people can find me online. Um, my website is nutritionforclimbers.com. So that's pretty easy. I'm on Instagram. My handle is real nutrition dietitian. And what am I excited about? I just want to keep moving forward with this. Like this is what I've been working on for years. I've 
produced, you know, these scientific publications, a book, I blog about it. I'm always talking about it. I do a lot of workshops for teams. Like I, I feel like this is just where I'm at right now. And I'm excited about still getting the word out, you know, because mm. I feel like there's a lot we can do in the climbing community. And I want to be someone that can help and contribute to that. So I guess I'm excited about just staying the course <laughs> and hoping something <laughs> sticks at some point. <laughs> I love it. Well, thank you again, Marissa. I will link to all things Marissa Michael in the show notes at thenuggetclimbing.com for you guys listening. Check out her book. Be sure to check out her website and follow her on Instagram. Thank you guys for submitting such great questions. Those were awesome and really helpful um, contributions to this conversation. So thank you guys for opening up and sharing those questions. And Marissa, I'll let you go. It's a rare sunny day in Portland, so you should be outside enjoying the sun if you can. Totally going to go outside. <laughs> nice. Love it. Okay. Thank you again for your time. Thank you. Bye. All right. Bye. Hey, friends. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Marissa Michael, or at least found it helpful in some way. Once again, I put the link to the National Eating Disorder Association hotline in the show notes and right there in your podcast app. So please use that resource if you are someone who's struggling. And if you are struggling or know someone who's struggling with disordered eating, please seek professional help. And Marissa is a great place to start, but there's a lot of great resources out there for you. And you don't have to do it alone. All right, a few quick reminders about sponsors. Before you go, be sure to check out Crimped. Head over to crimped.com or find the Crimped app in the App Store. It's available on iOS and Android. You can try it for free. Also, be sure to check out Fizzy Vantage if you want to try their supercharged collagen or any of their other incredible nutrition products. Head over to fizzyvantage.com. Use code NUGGET15 at checkout. You'll save 15% off your next order. Don't forget to check out Petzl. Shop for Petzl helmets at your local climbing shop or online at petzl.com and get top and side protection to keep your noggin safe if, God forbid, the unexpected happens. You can experience the difference with Petzl. And finally, don't forget to check out the Arcteryx film, Free As Can Be. I watched it over the summer. I loved it. And if you love climbing, especially big wall climbing or stories of climbing on El Cap, then I know you'll dig it too. Head over to YouTube and search for Arcteryx Free As Can Be or use the direct link right there in your podcast app to watch the full 31-minute film for free. And that is it, my friends. Thank you for listening to the very end. I hope you found this episode helpful. Please share it with anyone who you think needs to hear it or would benefit from hearing it. Be healthy, eat enough food, enjoy your climbing, and we will see you next time. Anything else you want me to promote or put in the show notes? No. Can I take a picture of you with my Lego? What? <laughs> yeah. My Instagram feed is only Legos. <laughs> well, mostly Legos. <laughs> okay. <laughs> You're like, what? <laughs> do it. What is hap What are you going to do? This is fun, right? Yeah. I'm just going to hold it like right here. Okay. Like by your head. Uh-huh. Be like, Steve and my Lego. <laughs>
<laughs> you're like what <laughs> i have to look closer it's, at your instagram apparently that's hilarious it's uh it's just a way to have fun with it great i Love started that. out not doing legos and then i did them for like a week and everyone was like those were amazing and so i just kept doing legos <laughs> And now it's like a thing. <laughs> I love it. That's great. 